Dr. Malone in. Thank you so much for coming in. Last time they tried to hit us with the hurricane. We couldn't make it. We do have another one coming again now, but at least you're here this time. Thank you so much. Thanks. I guess it's Florida. You know, you got to live with it, right? Yeah. I love it. Well, it didn't beat us, and it got you here. Now, you have a really, really great uh, Bobby Kennedy quote, and I think it would be great to open with it if you could read it for us. Yeah, it's a little embarrassing. Um, uh, But you're Dr. Malone with the radio voice. Correct. You don't want the peanuts reading it. (laughs) Yeah, so so the uh, the book is finally finished. Um, It's been a year in the making. Extraordinarily painful. It's my first real book, and um, and so we're we're in the final phases of trying to get the jacket cover comments, um, which all have to be in by uh, tonight. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. So, so Bobby, this is coming out under both uh, Skyhorse uh, and Children's Health Defense as the label. Um, that's the same combination that put out the uh, real um, Tony Anthony Fauci book by oh, Bobby. Yeah. So, so this is what Bobby kindly um, provided as his quote. I, like I say, I'm embarrassed to read it. He says, "A courageous streak of idealism and stubborn integrity pitched Dr. Robert Malone off the giddy heights of the medical cartel, stranded in the wilderness." He's emerged as the most important prophet for medical freedom, public health, and civil rights. If we manage to save democracy and humanity, Robert Malone will get much of the credit. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Congratulations. When he sent that, um, it brought tears to my eyes, to be truthful. It's it's been um, a long, strange trip to quote the greats uh, and... um, uh, a lot of water under the bridge, and um, it's one of the one of the good things to come out of this has been so many new friends all over the world, and um, to have the friendship of a great American uh, like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, I think is well worth the price of admission. Mm-hmm. I think so too. And you find out who your real friends are real fast. No kidding. Um, yeah, it's an ongoing process. Uh, yeah, uh, the you know, being being in the trenches with people um, really uh, sorts out the good from the bad and the ugly. Real quick, really quick, and I, I've noticed and said many times on here, a person like you, person like Dr. McCullough, you guys don't. I call it the cave. I live in my cave. I'm on the computer constantly or here. That's that's the only thing I'm on, either at my house on the computer or sitting here. So for you guys to come out of your cave and go on a podcast, go on the news, you're in your lab. McCullough's doing his thing. For you guys to come out, something's really got to be wrong. If you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Because I've been saying it for the last six months that I like these guys don't go on podcasts. Yeah, so um, Why? Why speak out? Uh, the, the the reason is because it's the right thing to do. And the kind of the trigger event was seeing how the corporate media was doing everything they could to keep truth from from people. Um, 
key trigger was this earlier podcast, you know, before, before Rogan, um, uh, I got a call from a colleague named Steve Kirsch asking me if I would go on a podcast with this guy, Brett Weinstein, the Dark Horse podcast. And, and I thought, okay, I better find out about this Dark Horse. That sounds like dark web. I'm not sure. This sounds a little, little edgy. Um, and podcasting was something I, I didn't subscribe to Spotify. You know, I subscribed to Spotify to, to listen to, exactly, yeah, Brett, um, to listen to music, uh, not to listen to podcasts. <laughs> and um, and so uh, I looked this guy up. He's a pretty hardcore intellectual, um, well-versed in biology. I was pretty intimidated, and we flew out to Portland and did that thing, and the three of us sat around his little tiny tables, really made for two. Um, these three old guys uh, sitting around, and beforehand, we uh, Brett led. He said, "You know that your life will never be the same if you do this. What we're about to do is going to change all of our lives." And um, Brett, at the time, was very dependent on revenue from YouTube. Uh, Steve was the one that seemed to be bomb-proof. He was a uh, serial entrepreneur, uh, invented the optical mouse, um, uh, well-known in Silicon Valley. Uh, And uh, at the time, there was chatter about me and the Nobel Prize. I never put much faith in that. Um, I know the way things really are. (laughs) Um, But but it was discussed. And... uh, and then we did that hit, and um, and it was live streamed, and just as it hit a million, uh, Brett was deplatformed, demonetized from YouTube. Uh, but it was largely because he was speaking in favor of ivermectin. By the way, that was the sin mm-hmm. on that podcast. It wasn't the things that I said. Uh, um, and then uh, we we left, and and Steve and I jumped in an Uber, and Steve was following it on his cell phone. And the numbers were just rolling like an odometer, and you're driving 120, you know, it's just going click, 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 click. And, um, and I was like, oh, this is something different. I've never seen anything. I'd never experienced anything like that before. And, uh, and the press was so aggressive, um, would not let any information get out. They were clearly pushing a false narrative. And I came home to my wife and partner, Jill Glasspilbaum, and I said, okay, um, you know, this is a, you're not in Kansas anymore moment. Mm. And um, if we want to get the truth out, um, we're going to have to go to alternative media. And we've been, you know, functioning on social media for decades, you know, early times. Um, I used to be all the time on the Yahoo stock board chat rooms. And that's kind of where I learned how to, you know, um, parry and, and, and defend myself against the trolls. <laughs> um, uh, again, trying to get truth out um, to investors because they were driving a lot of my industry. Uh, and they were getting spoofed all the time by the biotech companies. Um, and uh, we decided to just throw ourselves into the podcast. Um, I was a complete neophyte, uh, and I accepted any podcast w- that would ever come to me in the interest of trying to get information out. 
knowing that that the new alt media was the only way the truth was going to get out to people and if you wanted to save lives if you wanted to somehow circumvent and overcome the propaganda um in lies it's just you know title of the book the lies my government told me if you want to break through that the only available channel now is alternative media and particularly the podcast is really powerful each podcast is a community and every time like I go on with your group okay you have your own demographic your own followers and I at the first I said yes to anybody I had some really <laughs> interesting uh, interviews I'm sure you did <laughs> if you started saying yeah 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 oh boy I can yeah. imagine yeah so so um, but I learned a lot it was a really sharp learning curve uh, but it was there's there's long been this criticism, just as you say, of uh, academics and physicians um, being in their own little cloistered world, talking to each other, having their own little academic cat fights and competitions and all of the bizarre stuff. I'd already con- gone through that and gotten sick and tired of it. I really don't like academia, and I really don't like academics, frankly. Um, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, and uh, it's... They, they live in a world, and I used to live in that world, where it's about, um, it's all about you. It's really narcissistic. You know, what are your publications? What's your ranking? What's your status? What's your academic rank? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it has nothing to do with um, creating uh, medical interventions that can help people and save lives, which is the whole reason why I did this, right? I didn't do this because I wanted to become a big shot or become immortal or whatever. That wasn't why I went into medicine. Um, and so if in order to um, provide truth and really fulfill um, what I believe to be my ethical uh, obligations, given what I knew um, and what my experience has been, which was kind of weirdly, uniquely suited to this particular moment. You know, and some people talk about uh, higher authorities and God and, you know, I don't know. I, I you know, am I being uh, channeled for some greater purpose? Well, it doesn't matter. It is what it is, <laughs> it is you know. Is, yeah. um, but uh, um, the reason why is because it had to be done. Um, it was the right thing to do. I had this share story early on. One of the ugliest attacks was one of the earliest attacks, and it was by the Atlantic Monthly. Um, and it came out within a few days of Peter Navarro and I putting out an op-ed in the Washington Times in which we basically endorsed the Great Barrington Declaration with some additional uh, bells and whistles, like we thought that uh, test kits should be made available to the general public so that they can verify for themselves whether or not they're infected or at least appear to be infected. We can argue about how accurate the test kits are. Um, but uh, that's what we put out, and uh, we immediately got slammed for it, um, just like the great Barrington people did. Why? Um, because of a, you want to send out a test kit? Is and, it? and because we said that you should only vaccinate people that are in the highest risk categories. You shouldn't waste the vaccine on everybody. You shouldn't use lockdown policies. They were counterproductive, et cetera. And um, 
there, you know, things are because of FOIA and, and Freedom of Information Act requests that are processing from Epoch Times and others. We're learning more about what happened in that little window of time. But Atlantic was communicating with NIAD and directly with Fauci. And NIAD put out this storyline um, uh, in response to Fauci's query about me um, that I had only uh, done a couple of publications very early on and then dropped out of the field, had no other real productivity. And that became the party line. That's what was, you know, because NIH, NIAD, Fauci controls, this is a fun fact. Um, I hunted this one down. Uh, Fauci has a basically a press office with over 60 employees that manage media, including social media, for him. That is not for the overall NIH. That's just for his division. Mm. That's a pretty good newsroom. Okay. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah. uh, that's quite a newsroom <laughs> for one right? guy, right? Yeah, who's yeah. making what one hundred fifty a year, two hundred a year? Uh, Fauci. Yeah, uh, Fauci is the highest paid federal oh, employee right. in, in the United States. That's He's right. going to retire with yeah. a pension that's largest one. that's larger than the salary <laughs> of the president of the United States. <laughs> okay. Oh boy. Yeah. Plus, his wife is head of bioethics. Oh, is she? Um, oh. Yeah. Mm. For for NIH. So there's that. Oh. And and his daughter Allison. Where is she falling to this? Uh, she is an engineer for Twitter. Oh, is that so? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Fiji. More than just water. This is not just rock. It's ancient volcanic rock that filters tropical rain, giving it double the electrolytes and its signature soft, smooth taste. It's not just water, it's Fiji water. This episode is brought to you by Let's Get Checked. Are you the man your father was? Recent studies have shown that men's testosterone levels have dropped substantially since the 1980s at about an average of 1% per year. Think about how old your father was when he was born. For example, if he was 30, your testosterone levels could be 30% lower than his. Low testosterone levels can have all type of health effects on men. It can affect your mood, sex drive, memory, muscle mass loss, you name it. And yes, low testosterone is more common the older you get, but it can affect men at any age. So let's talk about today's sponsor, Let's Get Checked. You can order a testing kit that will be delivered to you in a discreet packaging with next day delivery. Once your sample arrives in the laboratory, confidential results will be available from your secure online account within two to five days. So... If you want to test your hormone levels without having to leave your home, visit trylgc.com backslash mscsmedia and get 25% off your test using the code mscsmedia. The link is in the description at the top. Gee. Hmm. What, a, what a coincidence. What a coincidence. Yes. Yeah, so, so Quite a few of those. Huh? So this reporter from the Atlantic Monthly who oh. had done this, you know, another lesson learned. They, they seduce you. Okay. They come on, oh, I just want to tell your story. You know, it's it's such a tragedy that you've been so maligned. Um, you know, just I just want to give you a fair hearing. Oh, yeah, and, just like they did our buddy Rogan. He comes out and they cut him up for the last 13 years talking to a comedian about an African-American, and they're joking around and only cut it at the worst part, and then another cut, and then another cut. Yeah, so that, that little... Tape. That we won't. We won't, we won't use the N word. Yeah. But, uh, lest lest we be similarly pilloried. Uh, but <laughs> um, yeah. So media is wicked. Uh, so this uh, young buck reporter who works for 
His primary publications are basically about wokeism in in a journal of uh, academia, basically. That's his territory. Um, and he's been brought in to write this hit piece for Atlantic Monthly. And he, and he calls me up after, you know, with, within a day of when that Navarro piece comes out. Um, and he just obsesses, why are you speaking out? Why are you doing this? And I'm like, because it's the right thing to do. He cannot believe that. He thinks that I must have some financial angle here that I'm working, and that's the only explanation that could possibly make any sense. And he keeps drilling and drilling and drilling at me about, you know, why are you, why are you doing this? And, to, and saying because it's the right thing to do is not an acceptable response. They, they believe that the entire world is corrupt, um, and they fit everything into that narrative. Um, but it's not the entire world, of course. It's just the world uh, that is they perceive as their political opponents. Um, and the Atlantic Monthly, unfortunately, is now owned, I think Bill Gates is a, as an owner, and one of the majority owners is Steve Jobs' uh, widowed wife. Hmm. So it's very much a mouthpiece for Silicon Valley and and for the administrative state as it's currently structured and, um, you know, the people that are running it. We're about to see if that changes, uh, just not to be a spoiler, but um, there is an election tomorrow. We don't yet know, neither of us, as to what the outcome is going to be. If you if you take the politics, even though it's hard to do out of it, as far as doctors, is a lot of the reason why there was so much you know, kickback and feedback and, and shadow banning, is it because a lot of the doctors don't want to go against the grain or they wrote a paper 10 years ago and they don't want to change it? Is that part of the problem with all of this? So what's happened with the medical professional? That's really the question you're asking. Yeah. Um, uh, it's complex. And like, and this is kind of one of the key points of the book, not to pump it, but yeah, can um, you pull up tabs here, please. <laughs> um, is there's so many people uh, go down the rabbit hole? They say, "Oh, it's this thing, or it's that thing. It's the WEF, or it's the global predators, or whatever the explanation is." Right? Um, I've never been there. I've I've always been okay. This looks to me like a lot of people made book on this. A lot of people found an opportunity here to exploit for a variety of different agendas. Um, and the simplest one, of course, is is making money and popping your stock valuation if you're big pharma, you know, particularly Pfizer and um, notably also Moderna, okay? So there's that, but then there's the underlying economics that have been going on and the central banks and, and you know, digital IDs and central bank digital currency and social credit, it just goes on and on and on, on, right? But at the core of, uh, I, th I think that it's really helpful to kind of take these things one at a time, imagining they're like a camera lens. Okay, we're going to look through that lens. So if we just look through the lens of what happened to the medical profession, um, there's been uh, a couple of publications come out recently. One was in Minerva. Another one just came out today in a in a transplantation journal, as I recall. I posted it on on Getter. Um, the Minerva one is interesting because it was written. Uh, the first author is the Israeli scientist, who is the one that 
uh, disclosed the video um, uh, from uh, a Zoom call or something with the Israeli public in- Ministry of Public Health, mm-hmm. in which the uh, public health ministry uh, basically acknowledged that if the things that he had found in his report that they had commissioned him to do um, uh, were released, then they would be facing major liability problems. Okay, so he, you know, then they took that away and then they released his report in a very transformed way to make everything look okay. Uh, so this is the guy that wrote this Minerva piece. And what they did, it's a team of Israeli and American um, researchers published in Minerva is a quite credible social science journal. It has an impact score in the mid twos, which is pretty good for social science. I'm talking academic wonky talk. Um, but, uh, you know, that's how these things are scored. So, so it's a reasonable journal, peer-reviewed. And they did a survey where they interviewed a whole bunch of different docs. And they basically said, what have you experienced? How has this played out for you? People that were in the, let's say, medical freedom or medical truth movement. Um, and what came down from that, those interviews, is they were able to pick out and cluster shared experiences that they'd all encountered and then map that against known uh, propaganda techniques that are often deployed by corporate structures like say in the tobacco controversy or or um, glyphosate in Monsanto or you know any of these things where corporate uh, structures want to gaslight defame belittle whatever there's a series of classic techniques that have been demonstrated over years and are in the academic literature. You know, this is what you do. Bop, 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 bop. Um, and, and they just go down and punch down. Every single one of those were deployed on the docks. Okay, so this has all been a systematic strategy. So there's that. There was clearly a, a coordinated, multi-pronged attack to silence any dissenters that would raise anything that would cause... Um, the way the government put it, vaccine hesitancy. And one of the things that's, uh, and of course, that means if it's if it's something that would comprom- cause vaccine hesitancy, that means even if it's true, but it would cause, like for instance, the the people that formed Facebook groups in which they were sharing their own adverse events that were then deplatformed. Okay. Immediately. Yeah. Those those people even though they were speaking their own truth, um, were um, uh, at risk for creating vaccine hesitancy, and therefore they must be deplatformed in the interest of public health for this perfectly safe and effective vaccine that was neither, we now know, right, against a disease that was actually not a major public health threat, okay? But that's, that's so there's that whole thing, okay? A systematic, coordinated attack on physicians, and it was brutally wicked. I keep saying to people, you know, because I tour all over the world now, and one of the key lines I try to get out for people to understand is, we are in the middle of unrestricted information warfare. Um, Our opponents have no ethical boundaries. They will do and say anything because they believe the ends justify the means. Okay? And so... The docs have been subjected to the most uh, coordinated global propaganda campaign the world, Western world has ever seen. 
and that that's the truth of it. This is 21st century unrestricted information warfare. So there's that, okay? Underneath that, and, and I credit Pierre Corey for the one that first really brought this to fore. It's important, I think, to... I'm a little sensitive to making sure that people get credit Absolutely. for their contributions. As they should, as they should. As they you should. Know, because all the other ones that ran the other way. So Pierre Corey makes the point that one of the things that happened was the docs um, and the nurses and medical providers, first responders, were the ones that got the shot first. So they all accepted this product. And so therefore, psychologically, they're invested that they made the right decision. And so they have a kind of a cognitive bias because of this is what they did um, to be in favor of, of this medical procedure, which is an unlicensed medical product, which has been in, con- in contrast to uh, Nuremberg Code, uh, Helsinki Accords, um, the common rule in, in federal law. Um, uh, absolutely, you must have informed consent uh, in order to you know, for someone to accept an unlicensed medical product, really for any medical procedure or medical product, there should be informed consent. And all of the censorship has effectively completely stifled informed consent. But the docs have been in on it because they believed or, you know, that's one level, I think, that they had kind of integrated in their own behavior. And that's why these docs, like the one in the UK that came out after his father died, of a cardiac arrest um, was so brave. He he had been one of the early champions in the UK, very high-profile physician, cardiologist, um, and had been a strong advocate for the jab. And after his dad died, he went through the process of really, really looking into the data and thinking it through himself and came to the conclusion, no, these are not safe and effective. They probably caused my father to die, and I'm going to speak out. Of course, he was vilified for it. Immediately, like everybody else, right? Right, okay. But um, so, so then docs, even though that might be on the fence, um, why would they speak out? Uh, they're just going to get attacked, lose their license, lose their hospital privileges, um, demeaned, glass-lighted, you know, all these things. Okay, so there's that. Another thing I think from what I've encountered is the docs that were in the front line in the major urban centers, particularly in New York, uh, which you know had such an enormous mortality rate early on because they were destroying people's lungs with the ventilation and destroying their kidneys with remdesivir, and it was just a bloodbath. Um, uh, a lot of these guys have PTSD, pretty much all of them. And they're a hot mess yeah. psychologically right now. And they're, it's going to be even harder for them uh, to look in the mirror uh, with all the data that are coming out now. Then on top of that, you know, this is like a layered cake. Yeah. Um, how many things? What a strategy they had, though, huh? Oh, a, a global? <laughs> I, global I deployment. <laughs> global. The same things happen here, happen in Italy, happen in France, um, happen in the UK, happen in Latin America. You know, not so much in Africa. Africans were like, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Australia <laughs> put themselves, I think, in oh, another corner. New Zealand? New Zealand? Canada? Yeah. I mean... That, yeah, so that's been one of the fascinating things that this has revealed. That's a that's a rabbit hole, 
is the penetration of the World Economic Forum in, in all of these countries, that the key countries you've just mentioned, and the people behind these policies all share the fact that they've come out of this five-year training program called the Young Leaders Training Program for the World Economic Forum. And they're all basically acolytes. They do what they're told. But that's another thing. So back here domestically, one of the things that the Brownstone Institute recently has done a great job in revealing, this is Jeffrey Tucker's organization, and his basically um, a posse of volunteers, writers, um, is the documentation that the truth is, underlying all this, is that the response in the United States has not been managed by Health and Human Services. It's been managed by the Department of Homeland Security. Hmm. So we have all of these propaganda, information control, um, management techniques that were set up for domestic terrorism. And we had Secretary Mayorkas and Homeland Security defining um, basically vaccine resistance as domestic terrorism. And, and defining these words, yes, absolutely, I can show you the quote. I've, I cite yeah. it all the time, okay? Yeah, I'm just processing out, it. You know, it was put out in February, okay? Yeah. So this is the mis, dis, and malinformation uh, statement in February from Department of Homeland Security in which they specifically talk about um, uh, COVID resistance as prompting uh, domestic violence. Now, I'm not aware of any instances <laughs> of domestic that? violence <laughs> associated with any of the protests. Matter of fact, we've tried so hard <laughs> to create success- it. <laughs> successfully, we've tried so hard to keep any violence from happening. Yeah. Like in the, the Lincoln Memorial uh, Stop the Mandates, mm-hmm. um, uh, there was, we, we, we have a problem with some infiltrators, frankly, in the movement. And one of them tried to get the Proud Boys to come and really tried to provoke more violent responses. Um, just like we had the, in the Canadian trucker protest, these infiltrators that were waving Nazi flags and, and you know, they quickly got ejected by the truckers. They're like, no, you're not part of yeah. us. Um, you know, we're about kids and, and parents and families and doing our job. Uh, but um, there has been efforts to try to provoke violence because if there could be any violence then that would justify a really heavy-handed response um, and one of the things I'm most proud about and I think Matthias Desmond gets some credit for this I think I get a little bit of credit for this too sure do. is, is <clears throat> promoting the idea that we have to be nonviolent. it's absolutely essential and one of the, I mean, there's been a number of moments that just kind of, you know, I'm not, I'm not prone to crying, but brought tears to my eyes. And on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in that wicked cold January, to have people coming down along the reflecting pool from the Washington Monument, and they were calling out to each other, I love you. And they were giving each other hugs. That's great. It was an amazing moment. Um, that had to be beautiful to see. It, it was, and and they absolutely did not expect it. Um, and uh, you know we, they, that that was a, a a key moment. I can tell you that 
in organizing it. We had multiple meetings. There were people that I won't mention. Sure. That uh, were scared silly about attending because they were sure that coming on. This was the first major protest after January sixth in D.C. Ooh. And there was a lot of people that were pretty frightened about what was going to go down. Well, we see what happened with January 6th. We had a couple guys in, and, um, you know, these are veteran guys, you know, and they can say whatever they want. Me personally, I believe them. And they had said that, they, you know, they just went there as a friendly protest, and the federal agents were actually telling them to go in where they weren't supposed yeah. to. They were setting them up, basically. E- Epoch Times, I think, has done a great job yeah. covering that story. Um, I think all the way. Th- so let's give a shout out um, for an up-and-coming uh, old-school uh, uh, press outlet. Not influenced. Well, they're they're influenced by the fact that Maybe they the hate the CCP <laughs> as as well. You would too. I yes. mean, the truth is, the truth is, a lot of them are Falun Gong, and the Falun Gong have been prey for the CCP for organ transplants and all that kind of stuff. And if I was in that movement, I'd be pretty pissed too. Me and you both. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think we got to cut them a little bit of slack on that storyline. But I can tell you, so that's been one of the. F- really fun things. You know, I talked about forming new friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, Jan Jakelik and his wife um, did interviews with me, and Jan does this uh, American Thought Leaders piece, which I was just so flattered to be considered an American thought leader. I'd, I'd do anything, <laughs> you know. So I drove up to D.C. and did the hit. And, um, of course, we got hammered by the fact checkers, <laughs> um, which knocked him aback. Nobody had ever seen anything like that. Um, and everything I was saying was true. But that caused them to really up their game. And now when you see the video pieces, they, they are rigorously cited and they pull out the blocks of text. They've really been quite good at it. And it shut down the fact checkers completely, bless their hearts. The fact, check- um, <laughs> the fact checkers never say their names either. Who's the fact checker? Give me your name. No, actually I, I did. So there was a number of them early on that I did call out. Um, and they seem to have gone away. Um <laughs> I bet they did. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's been an interesting time. But so I, I was at an airport, and, and um, I forget where. I mean, I travel so much. Austin, Dallas, I don't know. One where. of them, right? Um, and <laughs> and uh, Jan was there at the same time, and he pops over, and, and uh, we have lunch together with him and my wife, and, and we're talking about all this. And, and I'm asking about how his wife's doing. Oh, she's at school right now. Oh, what's she doing? Well, we've had to set up a journalism school for Epoch Times. Why did you have to do that? Well, because we looked at the curriculum for all the journalism schools in the United States, and they're all about advocacy journalism. Um, and if we wanted, we're not, we don't have enough reporters. We're growing too fast, and we're going to have to train our own. And so they set up their own J school based on old school journalistic standards, which is why when you read that paper and you see their, their media outputs on Epoch TV, what you're, it feels like yesterday. It feels like the kind of stuff that we used to get back in the day. And it's because they're a, a, adhering to journalism standards that existed, you know, in the 60s and 70s uh, back uh, I'm, you're probably a little bit younger than me, but still, I was a, I was a paper guy. I, I was a newspaper guy and a book guy. And when I read that article, it did. It, 
And I actually read it on the toilet, to be honest with you. And you know, back, you know, when we were growing up up north, TMI. you know, you would always get the paper and <laughs> yeah. the coffee, and you'd read them. That's just what you did. And it does. It, it it was written like when I was growing up, and I was yeah, you know, it was really good. Yeah, and and uh, to the point, it's exploded. Their readership has just taken off, which demonstrates there is absolutely an unmet market need there uh, for old school journalism. Uh, and um, unfortunately, it's just folks like us that are are slugging it out here in the alternative media space, or the. But I I think this is super important. I mean, I, I don't mean to take you off the track here, but no. I we we are in a period of profound transition about how people get their information. And there was a report out uh, by, I think it was Pointer Institute, which does a lot of this kind of media survey stuff um, and supports the industry, um, where they were talking about these changes. And basically, old school corporate media is dying. We know that. I mean, I routinely hit, Jill and I, on our sub stack, um, the same number of views that CNN gets in prime time. Whoa. <laughs> it's a new world. Well, we know they're not the brightest people in the world, being that they spend I am, like I am, I am choosing the lowest of the stack. <laughs> okay. I'm not comparing yeah. to Fox News. But still, but still, you know, two two people um writing from their homes uh in sending stuff out by Substack to be able to hit those kinds of numbers, it's right. a new day. It's amazing. And it's written from your heart, it's written from fact, it's written from care too. That has an effect, too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. We do put our hearts into it, um, and we treat our subscribers as customers. Um, we respect them. We listen carefully to them. Um, but but getting back, not make it about me, but about media um, and what we're doing here. Um, and by the way, the Pointer Institute flagged uh, the podcast as the new up-and-coming threat oh. to corporate media oh, wow. and specifically flagged oh. Mr. Joe Rogan. Oh, I'm sure they did. Um, and uh, highlighted that he has uh, propagated misinformation about COVID as, as the caveat, but they clearly recognize that something is happening here and they're not sure what it is and they don't like it very much. They might be a little scared. <laughs> I think so. Um, but we're, we're moving... You know who watches TV anymore? No, old people, right? No, nobody does really. Um, everybody now confronts a kind of a Chinese menu for information, and they can select the podcast feeds they want. They can select the Substack feeds they want. That was a great way to put it. The yeah. Chinese menu. Yeah, they're they're that's, they that's they right. they now ha are are facing a wealth of of um, information streams, and uh, the problem is that that there are those who are still applying. You know, I've been a champion of this term, fear porn, um, and the logic behind it, and pointing it out, particularly in relation to infectious disease. Monkeypox was a fantastic example of a whole, whole fear porn news cycle. Um, uh, you know, promoted by. People who are members of the Council of Foreign Relations that happen to work for CNN, among others, 
our, our buddy uh, Roger Stone was in and had a prediction that uh, monkeypox was going to be the next one. Well, he was dead on, and yeah, so that's a whole another thread. Yeah, that's another. Thread. <laughs> uh, but but um, there there are those who apply that um, stoking rage business model in the podcast. Uh, to try to get people fired up and to get clicks. It's the same, it's like the same failures, the same ecosystem that's been piloted by corporate media. It's just now being applied by the smalls as a way to build their audience. And and I think that we need to help, I, I try to help my followers and viewers, and this is another opportunity to do so, um, to learn how to see through propaganda and to view all this stuff with a skeptical eye. And again and again, I'll say, I'm going to say it again. Um, don't believe me. Um, don't, don't become a, an acolyte. Uh, don't become a mindless follower that just accepts whatever I say. Think for yourself. Because the only way that we're going to be able to win in this, the only way that we're going to be able to cut through the propaganda, these new 21st century mind control technologies and information control, it's thought control. That is what they're doing is thought control. Okay, It's basically um, hypnosis, mm. a form of hypnosis. It, it is, but it's, but it's deeper than that. It's profound. Um, the tools and technologies are incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um, but the only way to cut through that and protect you and your children is to learn how to think critically. And I always like to point people to this website, Logical Fallacy, Your Logical Fallacy Is. Okay, so it's yourlogicalfallacyis.com, I think. And what it, it's a fantastic tool. Um, it has all of the classic logical fallacies that people have when they're debating. These are, these are tricks and techniques that have been, you know, tested over time. And once you learn, like, the straw man argument and uh, the ad hominem attack and all these different strategies, you can see the media use it again and again and again. And as soon as you're attuned to that, you can see right through their propaganda. I did a piece two days, three days ago, a, a hit, um, uh, with a bunch of Canadians that were playing clips uh, from the Canadian government. Uh, and they wanted me to react to them. And they started with one was Justin Trudeau. And I, I was just like, okay, this is pure propaganda. Yeah. Here, 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 here. And then they put on one from the health minister that was one of these, because they're rolling out the whole Broadway razzmatazz kind of propaganda thing like they did at the beginning of this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they're doing it again in in uh, Canada. Uh, in and so I went through and I said, okay, notice what she's saying. She's using weasel words all the way through so she can never be held accountable. This might do that, or it might help with this, or we think, or all that kind of yeah. stuff, okay? And I said, you know, once you can see that, mm. you can cut right through it. Yeah, that's the site. That is absolutely, if you want to learn how to protect yourself. And think for yourself. And think for yourself, learn the logical fallacies because you will see the media commits them on a daily basis in almost all the information streams that you encounter. And we'll have that in the description. It is your logical fallacy is dot com. 
And that, that's a great point. We have to get people to think for themselves, well, especially when you have kids and everything else. You can't just go watch the TV, read a book. You have to think for yourself. And you're right. If we do that, that's things will change. That's yeah. how we win. I, th- I like to say we've all grown up as Madison Avenue has grown up. These marketing and thought manipulation technologies have developed here in the United States in particular to an extremely sophisticated level. And folks that have grown up in this environment, surrounded in this soup of manipulation and marketing, we've kind of become a little bit immune to it ourselves. It's like we've been vaccinated because we've experienced it our whole lives and we get to the point where we can see through it. But they've taken this technology now and they have um, moved it into the big data and machine learning yep. and all of that technology, and it's on hyperdrive. And then they've turned it on the world. And most of the world has not grown up with this stuff. And they're able to, you know, manipulate elections. Eat them alive. Yeah. yeah. They're not prepared. But, but here... You know, for for your audience and for all of us, and particularly since your audience is generally younger folks, um, if they invest a little bit of time in learning these tricks, it's going to pay huge dividends for the rest of their lives. We're going to say, no, I think too. It's it's just that having a conversation. We're having a conversation right now. The younger generation has grown up, like you said, with this tablet, with this phone. They're just fed this information. And you see it. You watch it. You see it. They're clearly they're on their phone all day long. There's no conversation to be had with anyone. They're just taking in whatever this being told to them into their head. Maybe it's truthful information. Maybe it's not. No, it's having. But but, correct. But having a conversation like we're having, and maybe my first thought is I don't agree with this or you don't agree with this, and we talk and we we figure out and we come to the logical. He's right, but they don't have these conversations, the younger generation. They're just in tune to that iPad all day long, and they're given that information, and that's what it is. Yeah, so so this, this is why when I first heard Matthias Desmond um, so long ago um, on a podcast, this, this psychologist from the University of Ghent in Belgium with a Belgian accent speaking, <laughs> you know, pretty, this is pretty wonky stuff. Yeah. Um, and he starts talking and he talks about mass formation or mass psychosis. And by the way, the heading on that particular podcast was mass formation psychosis. I did not come up with those words. I thought you did because when uh, I was researching, everything was mass formation psychosis. I, I said it 3,000 times to myself so I wouldn't uh, say it wrong. <laughs> yeah, so because that's, 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 that's how the media is. attacked, yeah. okay, is they said this guy who has no background came up with this okay but the truth is that it goes back to sigmund freud okay it's been around a long time uh but my point that i was getting at riffing off of what he was just saying is um matthias talked about the precondition that enabled them to manipulate us in the way that they have was the social fragmentation and in particular the social fragmentation due to these new tools and technologies that have torn our social communities apart. Mm-hmm. Just like he said, we're not connected with each other anymore. And that is that is the the 
the crack in the wall through which this monster has been able to come and and take over everything. There's no more solving. It seems dividing. Divide, divide, divide. Instead of me, you, and Rob, we have a conversation and we solve something, we're all divided. Everyone's divided with everything. Because the... So then... So that's a tell. Okay? I don't want to... Let's not... You know, we can't we can't ever know what's inside of Klaus Schwab's head, right? Right. Um, uh, we can see what he says, or Harari, or whatever. Um, we can see what Joe Biden says. We can see what Barack Obama says. And by the way, he he has been one of the major proponents of the idea that we have to have censorship in order to save democracy. I'm sure he that is Orwellian. <laughs> Anything, else, right? I mean, yeah. you can trace it. I've done it in the Substack, where you just walk through his statements over time. Okay, boom, um, boom, boom, yeah, boom, boom. It's there. Yeah, you know, it's in the public record. It's, I'm not imagining something, but with with a lot of this stuff, we we can't really know what's going on in their heads. We can only know what their footprints are, what they've said, what they've done. We can observe these facts and then kind of draw our own conclusions. But I draw the conclusion that that I'm, I'm in on the logic that uh, there are a variety of different interest groups, I'm saying this very broadly, that have a very strong interest in, um, in particular Americans. Uh, being divided. There's there's no question that um, the United States and the United States Constitution represents a major obstacle to those who believe that nationalism is obsolete and that in order to solve the world's problems uh, under u- utilitarian model, the greatest good for the greatest number, right? In order to solve the world's problems, um, we have to have a one-world government. And, and we're seeing this roll out in so many different ways. It's, it's the Agenda 2030 in the United Nations, right? One of the things, just to illustrate, everybody is so perplexed about the open borders. What the heck is happening at the southern border? And we all tend to just see it through the lens of us as Americans. We're seeing them coming across from the southern border. And it's wrong. And we're seeing the fentanyl. By the way, we're having more deaths on a daily basis from fentanyl than we're having from COVID. Fun fact. I know. Okay. And where's that fentanyl coming from? It's coming from China. Fact. Okay. Um, But why why the open border and the southern border? Well, it must be a Biden policy. No, it's not. It's not about Biden. Um, The same thing is happening in Germany. The same thing is happening all over Europe. Um, It's because there is a policy in place in the UN now that we've agreed to, the United States has agreed to, that by 2030, we we all agree, the signatory nations, that is a fundamental human right to live wherever you want, okay? And that populations and individuals should be free to relocate and live wherever they want to live. And so if you're one of these people that buys in to this uh, new, you know, I'll say the words, new world order, um, uh, this vision, this utilitarian um, vision, there's other words we could add to that. Absolutely. Uh, Mm. But um, 
then then um, this this is the logic that has been agreed upon. They've signed it. Uh, they believe it, uh, and um, it's it absolutely destroys families, middle class, income potential, everything everything you could want. The whole reason to have an an autonomous nation state is lost if you buy into this idea that human beings are free to live wherever they want in the world and there should be no boundaries on borders. And this is not an American thing. This is a global thing. What's, well, <clears throat> I'm very good friends with John Rourke and he goes over to all the borders all the time and it is bad, 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 bad. <clears throat> he brings back video. You know, they pull all the tricks. You know, they pull all every trick in the planet and the coyotes right up there waiting. What is... With this one world order, how do what's the benefit to the people behind it? What's this massive benefit to them? So let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, we hear, um, we hear this phrase: "You will own nothing and be happy." What's behind that? It's a business model. The business model is um, that, and this is all, this is not speculation, this is not a conspiracy theory, this is out there, okay, Um, like a lot of these things. Uh, The business model is that um, in order for the most efficient allocation of resources, material goods, assets, cars, your Tesla, whatever, okay, um, uh, power, food. Um, uh, I'm talking about electricity or whatever, power. Everything, um, right? Yeah. In order to have the most optimal allocation under utilitarian model, greatest good for the greatest number, we need to have all those assets owned by a small number of entities. Now, it just so happens that the World Economic Forum is basically a trade organization of the thousand largest companies in the world, and it's really about 250 of those companies that run the shop, okay? Makes sense um, now. Okay, so they believe that the optimal allocation of resources requires that all assets be owned by a very small number of companies and the individuals that own them, and they should be allocated using basically a rent-based model. So what does that mean? If you use Microsoft products or use Adobe products, you've noticed over the last five years, you can no longer buy off a suite, right? You rent it. Mm-hmm. Monthly you get your, rent, right? You get your, you get your charge, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is this rent-seeking behavior. It's the best business model um, from their standpoint, okay? It gives you repeated revenue. It basically all puts us all into a rent model for everything, Okay. That's that's the world, and so when when your Tesla, your Tesla is allocated to you, and you pay rent to have your. I'm just using it as a metaphor. Right. Um, you pay you pay rent to have your. Or here's another example. Right now, if you are of a certain economic strata, um, you can pay a monthly fee to Porsche, and you can go check out whatever model in the showroom, bring it home, use it, play with it, bring it home, and get another one. Okay, it's not a cheap date. <laughs> uh, but but that's that's kind of the model, okay? And furthermore, uh, they decide you need a Tesla in order to have your allocated commute that you can take, you're allowed to take. This is the social credit system with central bank digital currency. 
That's where that goes. Okay, yeah. but you you're you're th- for the good of all. You're to drive your Tesla to your job in fill in the blank urban center, and then drive it back. And uh, when you're no longer useful for performing that task to for the greater society and the greater good, then they pull the Tesla back, right? Because you're just renting it. Okay. Um. So that's that's that logic. Um, is that's a dangerous. rent rent based model, and and your ability. This is very much the China solution. Okay, it's really the China solution being applied globally. Um, so you own nothing. You'll be happy because you'll live in a utilitarian world in which everything is optimized for the greatest good for the greatest number. And dominated by 250 companies. Right, who make decisions about what's good. What's good and, for you and me and everybody And else. we've just seen over the last three years a great example of uh, their ability to manage the world, okay? Which is just, I'll say it, it's just been a nonstop shit show. Yeah. Um, they've screwed everything up. At the, there's hardly a decision that they've made that wasn't wrong. But, uh, you know, they were able to re- enforce because they own all these tools, the media, you know, the, the um, banks. The, one of the big reveals, of course, was, um, and I don't know how tuned you are as, into what's going on in Canada, but um, a lar- lar- pretty much the majority of the Canadian legislature and governorship are controlled by the World Economic Forum. They've been trained by them. And the and the WEF is quite proud of it. Wow. Okay. And sure um they are. Yeah. It's it Canada has become uh the first true client state of the World Economic Forum. How are they doing? Um there's a lot of <laughs> of angst about about what's going on. I saw those numbers. Um and yeah. Uh but Trudeau played a quick game, and he's going to be in for another two years. There's not much they can do about it. Uh, but the reveal was when his finance minister, um, who's got a background in journalism, uh, not finance, <laughs> but is all, another yeah. WEF-trained, Christopher Friedland I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, journalist. Uh, journalist, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so they had this problem with the truckers. And by the way, they, they, it's now come out that they had decided before the truckers ever made it to the city that they were going to cast them as a bunch of far-right, uh, Nazi, radical, violent extremists, right? That was, a, that was a coordinated plan. That's how they were going to position them in the media. I love those truckers. Got to give a shout-out to those truckers. Truck, they that, went hard. That trucker movement so. was a major pivot in the history of the world as far as I'm concerned we owe all of those Canadian truckers a just a heartfelt thank you and they did it from their heart left their families no money or brought their families or with brought them. their families with them drug them with them I mean you got to give it to the truckers and, you have and, to. and then so they're sitting there in the city the capital city of Canada and they park and what do they do Break out their guns, they get no. violent. No, they honk their horns. <laughs> That's all they, they do. They honk their horns. <laughs> okay, remember? I mean, uh, and and the the kind of the the backlash, the, the roundness of 
given the Canadian goose, which is what, all it does is honk, right? <laughs> to, to have truckers honking <laughs> in their capital. Um, and so what do they do? What are they going to do about this? Because the truckers aren't going to move. And the cops um, won't do anything about it, uh, the local cops. And uh, the trucking, the, the um, uh, towing companies are all truckers. So they're so like, they're, yeah, <laughs> right? They're yeah. not going to tow Take them. Take their own people. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what are they going to do? And, and um, then the big reveal happens. They weaponize the banking system. First, they start off um, donations under Give, Send, Go and, and PayPal and those kinds of things all get shut off. And uh, they try to shut off the use of cyber currency to, to fund the truckers and make donations. And then they go full on and they shut down their bank accounts. They shut down their access to the bank accounts. And anybody that provided any donation or support gets shut down. Wow. The, the thing that blew my mind. The amount of power that they have that quick. And it almost crashed the entire Canadian banking system. Because the way that worked, that whole ecosystem, okay, Canada was seen as a safe refuge. And I like to use the metaphor. Imagine you're a, a, a heiress in China, okay, um, where they have a social credit system and, and something equivalent to ESG scores. And the, and the CCP can decide on a moment's notice, we think you're corrupt, and they'll take everything. Okay, they'll just flip a switch. And you no longer have a bank account. Bingo, done. Okay, so if you're sitting on a pile of cash in in China, you want to get that out of country. Okay, so what do you do? You buy American houses, you buy farmland, and you go to a safe uh, refuge for your banking. You go to Canada, um, and so you dump your money in Canadian banks that you think are safe. And, then, Christa, safe, and right? then Krista Freeland pulls her little trick, and suddenly you're like, I got to get out of Dodge. This is no longer <laughs> a safe refuge. Okay. And the money starts flowing out of those, you know, what is it, TDS and those other Canadian banks? Yeah, TD Bank. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and you can, the, if you can ever find the clip of Krista Freeland, I think it's been uh, memory hold of Justin Trudeau and Krista Freeland when, when the receipts came due on that. Um, she looks like she's having a nervous breakdown. Um, it is fascinating just observing her body language when she makes this announcement that they're going to stop doing this. What's her name? Krista Freeland. See if you can see if you can find her. It is it is amazing <laughs> clip because um, she just comes unglued. Uh, but for me, the thing that really brought it home was because I had recorded some clips that they broadcast. You know, I was really supportive of this. Wrote a substack that one of our top substacks, um, and uh, and I recorded these clips. And they asked me to record a clip as they were pulling out of the town and going back to their homes. You know, after all this stuff. And and by the way, those troops that were brought in, they were brought in from outside. I've talked to multiple Canadians about that. Those were not Canadians um, that were riding the horses and all that. Um, it was not Canadians. Not Canadians. Absolutely. They seemed to be speaking a Germanic language to the extent that they spoke at all. So they brought someone in. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's that. Um, but I was asked to record a clip um, that was going to be uh, shown at this uh, pig roast 
a farmer was going to do a pig roast as the truckers were leaving town, okay? And they would come out, and they would go to his farm and have a pig roast on their way back home. How okay? cool is that? Um, yeah. And it never got shown because they shut down the guy's bank account because he was going to have a pig roast yeah. for the truckers. Wow. That, okay? that, that's what I was, when you're talking about it, what, what boggles my mind is. And This episode is sponsored by Aurora. Do you know what the fastest growing crime in America is? For years, this crime rate has been surging and affecting millions of Americans. I'm talking about identity theft, and there's a new victim every 14 seconds. Yet despite this, those who have had their identity stolen are often shocked when it happens. That's why I'm excited to partner with Aurora, who is sponsoring this video. Aurora is identity theft protection, fraud monitoring, a VPN, password management, and antivirus software all into one easy-to-use app. Their VPN allows you to stay anonymous online by keeping your browsing history and personal information safe and encrypted. Protect you and your family from America's fastest growing crime. Try Aurora for free for two weeks and see if you or anyone in your family's personal information has been compromised. Start your free trial today. Go to aurora.com slash MSCS. The link is in the description below. This podcast is brought to you by Monster Energy. Tear into a can of the meanest energy drink on the planet, Monster Energy. It's the ideal combo of the right ingredients in the right proportion to deliver a big bad buzz that only Monster can. Monster packs a powerful punch, has a smooth, easy drinking flavor. Athletes, musicians, co-eds, road warriors, metalheads, geeks, hipsters, and bikers dig it. You will too. Monster Energy is more than just the green OG. Monster has Monster Ultra, Juice Monster, Monster Hydro, Rehab Monster, Dragon Tea, Monster Max, Muscle Monster, and many more. Buy on Amazon, buy on Walmart, or go to MonsterEnergy.com and believe me, you'll find a place. Unleash the beast. Monster Energy. I'm guilty of it myself, right? I, my dad always yells at me, I don't carry cash anymore, right? It's everything's on my card, 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 card. And more and more of people my age don't use cash and everything is on a card digital currency right like you said if they want to pull the switch what am i going to do you're toast i'm done so that that's the thing so we're so then this then we go down the rabbit hole this whole nother learning that i've had i mean this has been an amazing journey for me as somebody who loves to understand the world and people oh, and you, culture and you got all, all kinds of stuff. you got a whole new uh 10 years of college to go to now <laughs> I, and and um one of the things was I'm that, sorry, Doctor Merlin. I cannot believe they took they took that man's bank account down over a pig roast. Yep. I mean, come on, gone. But yep. that's scary. Yep. So people watching this, so that's, if you don't think for yourself, that's what is going to happen. It we we all have to be preppers now. We do. I mean, wow. it's it's like what a world. Okay, we've all got to be preppers. Um, uh, I for us, for my wife and I, um. Uh, we're like, where do you put your money? Yeah. Okay, nothing's safe. Um, uh, Substack subscriptions come in through Stripe. Stripe is controlled by Wells Fargo. They can turn it off at I a moment's notice. I think they're tied notice. to PayPal, too. No, Stripe, I don't, I don't, it could be. There, there's seven, be. there's yeah. 50 umbrellas with all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, and it's all owned by this same number of central funds. You, 
do you, sorry to interrupt. Do you think that we've had conversations, millions of conversations on the podcast over cryptocurrency? That's about where I was going to go. Someone's controlling it. And same similar thing. If they're going to pull the plug, they can pull the plug. Or you think opposite. so? That's that's just where I was going to go. Is I was talking. That. I was sorry. leading that. Sorry. Thank sorry. you for sorry. sorry to do that. It's it's okay. Yeah. Uh, you you we're great minds think alike. Yeah. Right? We're both going the same place. Yeah. Crypto. Um, and uh, that's been one of the weird things that I've had to learn. So weird. Mm-hmm. And um, I've had the uh, the gift, the opportunity to learn from some of, the, some of the top people in the crypto world. Um, I spent hours talking to the uh, guy who, who founded and runs Bitcoin Magazine, um, people that are central in Ethereum, Brock Pierce. I've, I've spent a lot of time with Brock Pierce, talking with him. Teach us. We've been stay, trying stay for in a his year house. to figure this out. Staying in his house, um, staying in some of his other properties. I'm talking to him about how he sees the world. Um, and uh, yeah, it early on, um, some of the folks, as you know, here in Miami is a big hub. Yeah. Huge. They, the Santos just signed, I had the guy in, his name's uh, Samuel Arms. Uh, Samuel Arms and the Santos, they had a pile of meetings and he signed a $109 million budget for crypto. Down here. Yeah, so so it's a, a major part of uh, the Miami scene. Um, and for instance, I was at the uh, last Miami uh, Bitcoin conference, and uh, Tucker and me and JP Sears and others uh, got to speak in a small session uh, to the whales. Uh, um, you know, I never expected to be rubbing elbows <laughs> with multi billionaires. Well, congratulations. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a weird world. Um, but early on, the Puerto Rican community, which is kind of a little bit of a satellite of the Miami community, and people live there part time because of the taxes, uh, tax benefits. I think it's like four percent. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and and Puerto Rico is not a bad place, except for the roads. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and, and the electrical grid. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit. But you know, when, if <laughs> you details, if details. you happen to be one of those people in that forty percent range, you know, maybe you do six months residency. There. That's what they do. Yeah, yeah. Right? that's yeah. what they do. It's smart. Um. Uh. Yeah, uh, so so we kind of got a lot of the docs got brought into that world a little bit early on because we were seen as um, examples what we were being subjected to with the propaganda and information control techniques was a little microcosm of what the Bitcoin community was having to deal with, and so I think they kind of saw us a little bit as a plaything, um, but also as a pilot project. Um, and so that's kind of what brought me into this crypto world a little bit. Uh, and at this point, um, we're not invested in crypto. Uh, we're invested in precious metals, but that's we'll just park that. Okay, that's where I'm at. Um, there's a saying, uh, how much gold should you have? Enough to bribe the border guards. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you might think I'm crazy, but I... I think personally, and not from my head, from talking to all these CIA guys and so on and so forth, I think Putin has the 51% of Bitcoin. I really do. Putin is an interesting character. And I've heard it said that his central bank manager is probably one of the most brilliant uh, financial minds in the world right now. 
Well, that would be a brilliant move then. Um, and the reason I had said, I had thought that over and over, I thought when the Algars lost their votes and this and that, I thought for sure you wouldn't see Putin. I don't care how much protection he has. But then I just started looking, researching, and I just I think he's got a lot of that Bitcoin. I think he's a big holder. So that's an interesting hypothesis, and obviously he's collecting gold. And that, um, and that's a thought. There's no proof on that. That's just my dumb yeah. opinion. Um. So, but on that thread, uh, so just to kind of set level playing field, um, we have central bank digital currency or centralized digital currency, and we have decentralized. And that is a major division. And um, there is a school of thought that those that are holding decentralized, like Bitcoin or Ethereum, um, are likely at some point to be forced into a position where carrying, holding that and trading that will become illegal. And there will be a period of time where there's a, a grace allowance to convert into central bank digital currency that will all be controlled by the Bank of International Settlements. Um, and uh, so this, this uh, in one school of thought, this belief system that um, uh, by going with decentralized uh, cyber, you're you're a pirate, you know, <laughs> knife in the mouth, and you know, free of of the control of the globalists. Um, uh, I don't think so. What do you think about the blockchain, though? Blockchain is clearly a very powerful technique, and what I'm uh, most intrigued by because of the space we're both in now. I mean, I've, I've become a media guy. Yeah, you have. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> have to, you know, it's it's uh, you know, learn to swim or or drown, one or the other. Um, so, uh, the v many people are predicting that within the span of the next two years, and maybe this election that we don't yet know what's going to be on the other side of because we're broadcasting, we're recording on a Monday, um, right before the election, so we don't know what that's going to look like. But um, I think I lear learning from people who know more than I in this area and trying to listen to them, a lot of them predict that over the next two years, the ICANN committee that controls, I'm not talking about Del Bigtree's ICANN, I'm talking about the committee that controls the internet and the URL addresses, will become co-opted. And when it does, um, the everything, everything is already being memory-holed. Okay, and URLs, you know, the addresses that we use to to find your uh, your Spotify feed or other feeds. Um, if you're deemed uh, to be uh, an undesirable in some way in the whatever the information landscape is of that time that the censors will approve of, uh, you're not going to be able to find yourself anymore. Just like here's a fun thing. Try to find uh, my Rogan Spotify hit using Google. Never you gonna You'll never get there. Yeah, you, you can't use get brave, brave right. or a number of the others. Yeah. Actually, I'm I'm not entirely uh, sanguine brave. about brave even these days. What are you using? Um, there's another one, Free Spoke. 
Uh, we what, what we're doing now is bouncing between different uh, browser tools uh, in order to because some of them you just get unfiltered and you just get barraged with all this stuff. You can't find the you know what you want because you get so many hits. Um, but so the vision, getting back on point, is that we already don't have a free internet. Um, and I'd like to raise the point I, that I said on uh, Oahu uh, last winter um, when I gave a rally there. Uh, do you remember back in the day when we all felt sorry for the poor Chinese because their internet was censored and they didn't have free speech to talk about things? you remember that day? I actually do. I um, do. Cause, I, like cause, they were slaves, like they were held hostage from everything fun. And here we are. And here we are. Okay. Um, and it's only going to get worse. And so getting back to your point about blockchain, what does Web3 look like? What does the new internet look like? And how can it be empowered? And, the, and we've done some stuff with the Global COVID Summit site um, in which, um, in, in for instance, with our massive spreadsheet where we have, it's just the most comprehensive spreadsheet on World Economic Forum Young Leader Trainees. You can find all kinds of stuff and it's available at maloneinstitute.org. You can download it and you can search you know, for, by industry, by nation, by graduating year, whatever. You, it's just a great big spreadsheet. Awesome. And we put that out, blockchain protected. The problem is the encryption and encoding for all that is really kludgy. And to encrypt video on blockchain is a pain in the keister. Uh, and the logic that we create a new web, let's call it, for sake of argument, we'll call it Web3 just because we have to have some name to talk about it, um, uh, in which everything is blockchain protected so it can never be eliminated, erased, deleted, memory hold, these things that are going on right now. Is that accurate? I, I've heard that from these, you know, NFT, Web3, you know. Advocates. Advocates. Yeah, and is what that- I'm hearing is no, that is not the way it's going to go. Oh. It's too kludgy. Too kludgy, yeah. Okay. Um, what I'm hearing is one business model, and there's a lot of competing because whoever figures this out is going to make a ton of money. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Let's just hope it's not Bill Gates. Up, up and. <laughs> uh, well, he'll probably buy it once somebody figures it out, right? Yeah, his name um, keeps popping up everywhere. Well, I. Okay, on that thread, I like to say every time I turn a corner in building this book, um, and, and I'm running down another rabbit hole trying to f- understand and help people to understand what's happened. I, th- I get down to the end of that rabbit hole, and there's Bill and Melinda Bill. Gates Foundation looking right back at me mm. every single time. They're into everything. They're, he is a monopolist. That's what he does, right? He monopolized browsers, and and we and the U- U.S. government pulled jerked his chain on that and shut it down. He monopolized operating systems. He's now monopolized public health. He's trying to monopolize farming. farming. He's trying to monopolize uh, water. Green, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Everything. So that's that's how he's wired. That's um, what he does. He's a monopolist. He's the best monopolist perhaps we've ever seen. Um, but that's what he is. So um, in this vision that I'm hearing as one version of what Web3 looks like, um, you remember Napster? 
Yeah. 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 Napster, LimeWire. Okay. We can so, download everything. So the Napster business model was that you subscribe and you allow um, use of your um, tool, uh, you know, your server or whatever, in part to store fragments of information. And those fragments are stored all over the world in a deep redundancy um, so that when you go to download this song or that song, it pulls fragments from local servers so you have quick ping time, right, on quick download time, and it reassembles them, and that's what you get to see. And no one person is guilty of having stored and distributed the song. That was the logic back in the day. Remember, there's all pirate radio, basically, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so under that kind of a model, um, we could potentially store the content of Web3 in a decentralized, redundant fashion um, as fragments and then have blockchain-protected lookup tables. So then they can't erase the um, addresses now, often, you know, you're going to have to have tools to be able to search through that massive lookup table. So you're still going to need a Google-like thing, a portal, to access that repository of where everything lives. But it's going to be like you have a, a pointer that's blockchain protected that goes out and it allows you to identify fragments of these files that can be reassembled rapidly, you know, because everything's about video streaming. And that's big files. Especially if we go to 1080p and plus, right? Yeah, once you get to 4K, 4K oh, yeah, forget 4K. about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll be sitting here. It's, it's well, yeah, we do sit here. You know, <laughs> the squirrels are going to be running around yeah. on the on the little uh, basket. <laughs> um, so, uh, the problem with that business model is, um, you know, if you've got snuff films, kitty porn, uh, ISIS training videos, and you've got, you know one-tenth of one percent of a snuff film on your server, okay, you can't control it. So then you're back at censorship, and it's, it's uh, you know, you just go round and around and around. And, and how do you solve that problem? And I, and I don't know that that's what I'm hearing from people that I'm, you know, touch on me because they see me as a content provider now. Um uh, is that that's kind of the state of a lot of the discussions right now. But there's big money behind this because there's big money to be made. It's going to transform the world. But we may only have two years or less, which means it's got to be deployed pretty darn soon because people have to assimilate that. Um, and it, we may go to a world that's more like the old AOL world where you have to know what you're looking for in order to find it. And many people have already migrated to that. Dell Bigtree is a great example. I had him in last week. With a Hotwire. Okay, yeah. so Hotwire is like its own little space. And um, Dell's big worry is um, what happens if they cut off his URL um, feed? Uh how are his followers going to be able to find him? Because he's got this big donor base that he's, you know, just like the way we approach our Substack, only on a much larger scale. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to his his he was uh, in shop. Here. Yeah, he was in yeah, here. So I've, we've yeah, so we've shot multiple videos with him. I've been out there. Um, 
on hung out with him and his team. Fantastic team, by the way. Yeah. Uh, really uh, have brought high quality production into this space. Uh, you know, commercial grade. Which, by the way, is one of the things in that pointer report. Just to wrap it back around, um, that they identified as one of their major threats is it used to be that the public could know from the quality of the feed that this was, you know, endorsed real corporate media. But now these alternatives have come up and now have production qualities that basically match. And Dell is a great example of that. Um, and and I think he just deserves a lot of, a lot of credit for upping the game. I think we're all going to have to. The ICANN, the, when he showed me the ICANN for Health that he made, I was amazed. I mean, that was very impressive. You could click. I mean, you could see everything on there. You got to so, give it to the guy. So wait for it. I'll give you a pre-read. It'll probably already be deployed by the time this airs. But uh, Ed Dowd has been working with two um, solid data scientists in Portugal to build a global database of um, that allows real-time with with a portal designed for your viewers um, uh, with uh, real-time access and display. Like if you go to Worldometer, I don't know if you use any of those things to look at the COVID data or, or public health data or whatever. Yeah, now that I'm into all this, I have, yeah. Yeah, so, so it's going to be that kind of a thing, but it's going to allow you to run your own correlations for uh, the vaccine deployment and all-cause mortality, excess all-cause mortality. And what I, I haven't seen it yet. Ed just talked to me about it over the weekend. Um, I've seen kind of a pre-read because of a colleague of mine, Theo Shooters, in the Netherlands that's been doing this in the Netherlands with their data on a more limited basis. But apparently it makes it, when, when you see these correlations and you can pull them yourselves, um, the linkage between vaccine deployment and excess all-cause mortality cannot be denied. It is in your face. Um, and that one is one to watch for. Um, I understand from Ed that he's going to roll it out first with Steve Bannon. Maybe tomorrow. Good Although for him. Tomorrow's going to be a busy Might day. Might be a big day, huh? <laughs> <laughs> busy day, a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> and before we came on, we were talking about uh, Twitter as a weapon. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Because you got a lot to say about that. And we didn't want to blow it before we came on. And I really, we really want to hear about it. I mean, I see how they're, they're using it as a weapon, but it goes much further and it's global and so on and so forth. So um, this thread uh, uh, was kind of provoked for me um, by a, uh, a, a website that was put up by a group, I think it's Wyoming, that does relationship mapping, relational analysis. They do a lot of it for court cases. Um, and you'd have to go back to the Substack. Uh, um, Twitter is a weapon, not a business that we put out. It has the links to that. Um, and they had done a series of analyses for a third party, a, a legal case or something, I don't know, or a politician, where they looked at the relationships between Biden and Obama and a lot of key figures in the Obama and, Obama and Biden administrations and uh, the big law firms that are behind uh, the Democratic Party and in particular Twitter. 
and this is this is where this uh, in this relationship analysis where they basically say, okay, this guy is connected here and here and here and here's why and and all that kind of stuff. You've seen those those images, mm-hmm. uh, um, and they were the ones that really brought to fore the relationship between Allison Fauci, who's Tony Fauci's daughter, uh, who works as an engineer for Twitter. And they kept that quiet. Yeah. That one they kept real quiet. Yeah, good job. Did you know that? No, no. Heard for hearing it now for the this first time. This is the first time I've ever heard that. Yeah. So they they brought that kind of out, and um, and it really as you went through their relationship mapping, it it becomes really clear that Twitter has been employed as a tool, a weapon of the Democratic Party. Um, Why Twitter? Why do you think they picked Twitter? Well, Twitter. So all of them are. I mean, like Facebook is explicitly a DARPA, a DARPA project. Yeah. Okay. It is intelligence. All of these are intelligence weapons. But Twitter is the one that has kind of become the hub where all of the, um, where a lot of the press goes to develop stories, identify stories, um, build consensus. Uh, it's kind of become their exchange hub. Which ne- is why I never understood that. It. Never understood it. It's but, what they use. It's, you yeah. know, they 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 can't. You know, they're going to go to Facebook. Facebook yes. is like so yesterday. Yes. Uh, the, the big announcement. I'm 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 just, you know, <laughs> that, that Meta is going to have major layoffs. I can't. <laughs> You're just. <laughs> it's too rich. <laughs> you got you got your timer on. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Below's got—he's got one of those little holes in the pocket. T-minus fourteen hours. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's got the countdown. Meta, at the house. meta layoffs. Uh, meta meta layoffs. Yeah, exactly. Following the in the thing of Twitter, which you know feeds into that whole storyline about um, uh, those people that live in the real world versus those people that live in the in the um, virtual world. But parking that going yeah, on Twitter because I want I want you to get to that because that is very good the way you had. Yeah. So, so Twitter has become de facto uh, the hub for uh, journalists and thought leaders all over the world as they battle uh, for what is going to be the accepted narrative. And it has absolutely been um, employed to craft that. And we have so many people you know i had developed over half a million and then without warning was just deleted um immediately prior to the rogan podcast for some strange reason mm-hmm. um uh same with linkedin um where i had less is about um uh i don't know uh, uh, and linkedin's microsoft was it was right? about 250,000 as i recall and microsoft owns linkedin right yeah yeah and apparently soros is Got his fingers in that one too. I'm sure. Um, but uh, LinkedIn, you don't hear, you don't hear too often them knocking people. It's off on well, be, yeah, no, it's it's uh, unusual. In both cases, there was no warning um, or reason. Uh, actually, uh, we there was a group in California that asked me to be part of their um, legal case against Twitter to get reinstated. Oh, fantastic! Um, and uh, we lost. A judge in California just threw it out. Didn't, didn't matter what they said with Alex Berenson. Um, and we were faced with a uh, – California has an anti-slap provision. That's part of, of why you don't see many lawsuits for defamation. And, and what's that mean? What, that, what's an anti-slap? If, if the court case goes against you, um, 
in the defamation lawsuit, you will be uh, fined uh, the cost of the defense. <laughs> okay, so you can find yourself um, suddenly, and there's a doc in California that's had this happen just recently. She got hit with over a million dollars in charges what? Uh, for the legal defense against those that he, she had sued for defamation. So California is not a friendly place to do this. You, it's, you know, for, for a guy like me, it's the um, plague. you know, it's, uh, you know, a million dollars is not Alex Jones, but it's enough to put me out. Um, and uh, so anti-slap provisions. Um, and wow. so, so the judge basically threw us out and we were going to have to pay Twitter's legal fees. Um, and uh, Twitter graciously agreed that they would, uh, um, Give you a payment plan? Not, <laughs> not charge us the legal fees if we signed an agreement that we would never try to get back on Twitter again. Hmm. Um, so that's the way that played out. But in the context of the court case, um, they revealed the reason uh, for my being deplatformed for the first time. And what it came down to was that I reposted this fantastic video from the Canadian COVID Care Alliance in, when they docu in which they documented the clinical trial fraud of Pfizer for the COVID vaccines. That was my sin uh, that caused me to be deplatformed. And if you go back and look at that video, it was rigorously accurate. It still remains rigorously accurate. I, I was going to say, isn't this fact? Yeah, it is fact. <laughs> it right? is fact. Um, but you know, fact that's doesn't fact, matter. Fact anymore. is fact is whatever they say it is, right? That's that's the the world of the virtuals. The world of the virtuals, reality is whatever they say it is. It's it's not an objective reality. So in the virtuals, it's whatever they say it is. Yeah. that's what it is. It's whatever you believe the world to be, that's what it is. Um, but getting back to Twitter, uh, and Twitter is a weapon. So I was scrolling through the information that had been revealed in this linkage analysis. And uh, there was speculation that Twitter had been deployed during Arab Spring. And that's what triggered me, because I knew for a fact that it had been deployed during Arab Spring. Arab Spring is often talked about as the Twitter revolt. Okay. One of the things people, you've had these various folks from the spook community come on and, and chat you up. So you understand that world, uh, as do I. I'm not CIA, never have been CIA, but I've had a, a retired CIA person as a business partner. Um, and I've been introduced to many people in the CIA and interacted and even co-published with some of them uh, because that's the nature of the business I used to be in in biodefense. They're all over. Um, uh, they're thick. If you want to deal with the leadership in that space, you're dealing with the agency, okay, um, all the way up to the world um, leadership. Uh, so, um, so the point was made that um, Twitter, that this group was speculating that Twitter had been deployed uh, during Arab Spring um, as a tool. Uh, and when I read that, I was like, well, yeah, um, I knew it had been because I used to have a client called Behavior Matrix. Uh, I've had many clients. People think of me only as a vaccine guy, but I'm really good at writing very, and winning very large government contracts. Um, it's part of what my toolkit is. And uh, um, so over time, a lot of different companies have come to me 
uh, and and I've had security clearance from the DOD, so I get that space. Um, just establishing my bona fides. I'm not just saying these things, okay? Um, so Behavior Matrix has subsequently been sold, and it had a, a component that was non-classified and a component that's classified. So I'm going to talk about the non-classified part, but I'm going to kind of allude to some of the others. Please do. Um, uh, those tools, what the government does historically is um, it will go into various conflict situations in part as a way to pioneer in pilot test technology. It's like beta testing. Only you're beta testing in uh, a hot you know, conflict environment. Um, the helicopter was beta tested in the Vietnam War. Um, I know that because my dad worked for Hiller Aircraft uh, back in the 50s, and wow. he was told, um, we're going to have a, a war in Southeast Asia to pioneer and pilot and, and enhance uh, helicopter technology, helicopter gunship technology. Okay, so that's... Well, that's, now I know why you're so smart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, well, that's, that's a whole other thing. So, um, so uh, Twitter was, you know, there's this talk about Arab Spring being a Twitter conflict. It absolutely was. Twitter was deployed in that theater. Um, and you need to understand, anybody that's interacting on social media needs to kind of understand what that means. And Twitter is a great way to uh, illuminate that. But you need to understand that all social media platforms are intelligence weapons, whether it's WeChat or TikTok coming from CCP environment towards us, or it's the stuff that we deploy worldwide, um, you know, Signal, whatever. Everybody thinks, oh, yeah, um, uh, you know, these these various chat uh, applications that have been deployed all over the world are safe. I'm sorry. No, they're not. Are any of them safe? I, not to my knowledge. Signal? No. Uh, Nothing. I don't think so. Um, so... Uh, I've been told that actually the um, the iPhone uh, FaceTime application is as good as anything. Um, uh, but what about Proton Mail? Have you heard anything? I about use Proton that? Mail all the time. So that's the only one, that's the only one, one I use. Yeah, because yeah. it's Swiss. Um, uh, so in any case, understanding Twitter helps you to understand this whole ecosystem. Uh, so um, the technology has advanced to the point where you can abstract emotional content in multiple different parameters from the words that you use. And the tools to extract that emotional content are now multilingual. They're automated multilingual. And um, automatically generated are relationship maps, okay? So the cloud of individuals that you as an influencer interact with is all known. And within those clouds, sorry, I hit the mic, within those clouds, um, individuals are identified as um, uh, being at the fringes of these influence um, clouds 
when you say fringes for people watching, what do you mean fringes? Fringes of of what? In this can be used for marketing, uh, for corporations, for governments, for propaganda purposes, anything. So, for instance, uh, if we s- just focus on Arab Spring, for example, okay. you had these this upsurge of young people because there's a huge cohort of very young people in the Arab countries now, not very many olds. Um, and uh, they all are interacting using social media. And so they all have their web of relationships. And some people are more extreme than others. I mean, we see it here in social media. You all, your audience experiences it. You, you know that there are some podcasters that are just out on the fringes that are pushing the crazy, right? And there's other ones that are, are like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, be really conservative and stay here. Okay, so the same exists with social media and with Twitter. There are people there that are saying um, we should hang them all, right, as one example, or uh, whatever the phrase is, or the underlying emotional content of anger, rage, um, or fear, or uh, calm. All of those, so people can be mapped about uh, uh, along those axes of how they are positioned relative to the norms of their group. So you can pick out statistically the people that are out on the fringes. It's dead easy to do, okay? And then, and this is where shadow banning comes in. People think of shadow banning as a personal thing. Oh, I got shadow banned. It's such a bad thing. They're being so mean to me. Okay? <laughs> but no, it has nothing to do with you, okay? You metaphorically, right? Right. The person being shadow banned. What, when you experience shadow banning, what you're experiencing is the algorithms are identifying that you're now big enough, because it doesn't happen when you only got 10 followers, right. okay? It happens when you're big enough, you're now big enough that you're influencing one of these swarms, okay? And you're influencing in various ways by what you're saying, the emotional content of, of what you're distributing, etc. And so they can select to emphasize or de-emphasize who gets to hear what you're saying based on where they want that swarm of people to go intellectually, mentally, physically. Okay? If you've got if if they want that crowd that's assembled to go attack the presidential palace they're going to emphasize the people that are out on the fringes saying, hey, we ought to all go together and, and pick sticks and, and knives and pitchforks and attack the presidential palace. And that's the stuff that everybody will hear. Or if they are on the other side, um, the people that are influencing within that realm that are like, oh, I don't know, this is, sounds really scary. We ought to all stay home. Well, that's what everybody hears, right? So that's, that's how that tool works. Okay. It almost sounds like <clears throat> like they're breaking it up into genres. Like if, if you take music for an example, you have country, R&B, you have rap. Let's say somebody comes in and pays Spotify $10 million to push the rap song. Well, if you're not in that, what they're pushing right now is the rap song to come up, the country and the R&B get shadow banned because the narrative that they want would be the rap. Or whatever. That's a good example in kind of making it accessible to people. Um, And that's true for anything, any content. Okay. So what that amounts to 
is for folks that are passively absorbing what is Twitter saying. And that includes all those blue checks, right? Yep. They're all being influenced, too, on the terms of what they're going to write in the newspaper or whatever, okay, what they're going to say on Twitter. They're all being influenced by what they're seeing. Um, and so the Twitter algorithms, you know, just turn a knob here, turn a knob there, and you control not only what information they're getting, you control how they're thinking, you control how they're feeling. You control their underlying emotional content. That's when it gets dangerous. Okay? It is that, it's the way things are. Okay? That's what Twitter is. Now, does Elon throw a wrench in that, do you think? I don't know. So there's, there's I'm still, somebody on a UK podcast last week kind of confronted me with this. You know, is Elon a good guy or a bad guy? And I'm like, I don't know, the jury's still out. Um, Elon is the largest U.S. defense contractor. Um, don't forget it. Elon is all in on Neuralink. Uh, I use Starlink commercial because I don't have decent internet for my broadcast now, okay? Thank God I've got it, um, and I can now stream at 1080. Yay, Elon. Um, only cost me 500 a month. And we have but, our friend Robert Beto over in uh, Ukraine who works with him, and he shot that. So I think he's one of the reasons, I think, was uh, for Buddy Beto. We need to get him back. <laughs> um, so uh, you got to look under the covers. My understanding is a lot of the capital for this acquisition, because this is too big. This acquisition, like he couldn't just write a check. I don't know if you remember. I mean, I've been tracking this. Uh, maybe your viewers have, many of them have also. Early on, Elon said I was going to buy Twitter, okay? Um, and, and I am the wealthiest man in the world, and I've got a boatload of Tesla stock, and it's worth a fortune, okay? And within about three weeks, that Tesla stock is suddenly tanked. Mm-hmm. Okay, he doesn't have the capital that he thought he had. What a strange coincidence. Um, it's amazing how the world works uh, when you're beholden to the World Economic Forum, uh, which he is. Uh, so um, time goes by, all this chitter-chatter. Uh, Elon, you know, the press goes out. Elon is the champion of, the of world. free speech, yeah. you know, and yeah. blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, okay, so did did somebody pony up big money to protect free speech? Uh, I don't think so. Um, my understanding is that a lot of this capital comes um, uh, from the Arab countries, hmm. which, by the way, were subjected to the use of Twitter as a weapon. Hmm. Right? Um, and... Uh, uh, furthermore, the business model, we always got to get back to, you know, don't don't fall for the razzmatazz, okay? You got to look what is the business model because that's what's driving these investments. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. When you say the razzmatazz, all the talk, oh, all of a sudden I'm getting traction now. I got 3,000 followers overnight because Elon changed the source code, that razzmatazz. Yeah, yeah. Or, or he's such a champion of free speech. Right. Um, maybe he is. I don't know. He doesn't talk to me, and I'm not in his head. He doesn't talk to me. <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> you talk to him, Ron? I haven't talked to him recently, All right. no. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Peter McCullough said that he was getting a call from Elon. I don't know. So 
I don't know. Um, Maybe we'll have somebody to th- to ask yeah. <laughs> directly. So the, what what was rolled out as the business model, as I understand it, is um, Twitter becoming the platform for X. And remember, X was what uh, Elon originally called PayPal. And there's SpaceX, and the 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 really cool fast. Um, Tesla is is Tesla X. Okay, S X is his brand. He bought it back from PayPal. What he describes is that X is to become, uh, forgive the Lord of the Rings metaphor, <laughs> the One Ring to rule them all. Hmm. It is to become the platform technology by which we do all of our transactions. Okay. Mm. We buy stuff, you know, we do our Ubers or what, whatever. Everything runs through X, which is why it was so important for him to know what the true installed user base was as opposed to the bots. Because that's how he placed value on it. Because the value is in the installed user base, which he now has and he wants to convert to a WeChat-like application space in which this social media platform becomes the universal platform for doing all of your business and all your transactions, your banking transactions, you know, your, your credit card transactions, uh, you know, get paid through, uh, you know, all this stuff comes through X is the vision, okay? Bankrolled by petrodollars, right? Um, and integrated eventually into Neuralink and and everything else. Uh, so uh, is is this all about Elon as a champion of free speech? I can't convince myself of that. I'm too, the, the, you, you probably know there's, so we all know red pill, yeah. blue pill, right? Right. Um, uh, what is a black pill? In the middle? No, black pill is those people who see conspiracies everywhere. Oh, okay. Um, and I'm afraid I'm kind of venturing towards black pill these days because I'm going down the dark hole. <laughs> I've just seen too many things. Yeah. The, you know, the, it's the way the world works. The world, world does not seem to be about making nice nice. It really doesn't at all. Yeah. So, so Elon, when everybody says Elon's the champion against, uh, you know, free speech, whatever, you have to dig down to it, which you just did. And I didn't know this. When, when, you, when you present it like that, the jury is still out. I still, I still think his big, in my opinion, what he's going to do too is um, he's going to find a way to take over or buy or purchase TikTok. I, that something tells me that was part of his bigger plan too. I don't know. That's just me. Time will tell. Yeah. Um, uh, when you put it the way you put it, that changes it. Like you said, you know what. What meets the eye isn't always the reality of the situation because when you say it like that with the X this, X that, now you have Twitter. Now everybody's going to run to Twitter because they think, hey, you know, this is the new up-and-coming thing. It's free speech. It's Twitter. But really it's just part of X. Well, and it's why he has to um, overcome the barriers to conservatives participating because conservatives are part of the market. Um, and like once again, the touch point. We'll see what happens tomorrow with the election, but it could be that there's been a gross underestimate of uh, 
the importance of of people that are branded as conservatives, for whatever that means these days. Um, uh, you know, they may be a larger fraction of the population than than was thought. Just like Maloney uh, winning in Italy uh, and was branded as fascist um, rabidly by the corporate media, and turns out she's pretty much. Uh, just in lockstep with the EU because she doesn't have any choice because Brussels completely owns Italy. I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating for me in all these travels is I now have a whole bunch of buddies in Italy um, and uh, because we did this international COVID summit in Rome, which was uh, another pivot point. You may not recognize it because it's a little, you know, in the physician space, but it was an important moment. How was, was it? Beautiful? Good? It was in... Um, and it, it was wrapped up. Uh, I had some advocates in the Catholic community that got me into the Vatican, um, and I met uh, Cardinal Turkson, uh, who at the time was considered to be second in line to the Pope. Mm. Um, but I got to speak in the Senate in Rome. I mean, how could you say no to that? Right. Um, and it, it was the it was the first time when docs from all over the world that were providing early treatment came together. It was kind of a key moment where we all kind of said, oh, it's not just me. We're all seeing these same things, and there's a bunch of different drugs that can treat this disease, COVID-19. So it was an important thing. But now I saw it. Now I have all these Italian buddies. And um, uh, so in some of you know the, the senator that invited us to speak in Rome, we couldn't talk about vaccines. That was off the table. It was too. It was off the table. That was a bridge too far. <laughs> um, we could only talk about early treatments. Um, but she's part of this conservative party that Maloney's part of. And uh, I was kind of warmly embraced by that sector of of um, Italian politics, maybe in part because of my name. Uh, but uh, what they have taught me is that Italy has absolutely no real operational latitude. They're in so indebted to Brussels, um, which is to say France and Germany in many ways, uh, that they, they really can't do anything other than whatever the EU tells them to do, which is why you have politicians like Maloney, as I understand it, who, by the way, Steve Bannon apparently mentors her. That's a fun fact. <laughs> um, uh, so... Uh, I like Steve Bannon. I I, <clears throat> I like him. He, I'm trying to get him in. He's bloody brilliant. Yeah. He just is. Smart as a whip. I mean, we could talk about what Steve does. There's no way I could do what Steve does. Um, He he builds those things on the fly in real time. Well, he does that stuff. You know, unlike most broadcasts where it's all carefully scripted and timed and everything else, it's, you know, sometimes it's a little too free form, uh, but... He is he's wicked smart. Um but uh but um the Italian government uh the reason why she focuses on social issues is it's the only thing that politicians can differentiate themselves on because they the government is completely owned. And what they tell me my Italian buddies, which may be a skewed population because they were in the resistance, is that um, what they what they tell me is not only is Italy owned and run by the by Brussels by the EU, but 
very much by the United States and functionally by the CIA, and it has been ever since World War II. That's great to know. I got about 10 cousins over there that I send polo shirts to. You know, that's what they want every Christmas, polo shirts. That's all they want is polo shirts and polo jeans. And Levi's, no? Or is that Russia? Uh, Levi's was like five years ago. Yeah. That's so, what they would ask for. Now they just want polo. They're so excited for polo because a, like a polo shirt there is 300 U.S. dollars. Yeah, so importation. Fun fact. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah that's good to know. I should, now I know what to bring. Yeah, bring, bring <laughs> them polo. I, I promise traveling. you. Yeah, because yeah. I'm sure I'm going to be there. I'm going to be seeing uh, my Italian buddies in Vienna uh, right before Christmas. So. I promise you, if you bring them a polo shirt, I'll, they'll make I'll it be the best here. gravy you ever tasted in your life. <laughs> I promise. I promise you. And if you bring them polo jeans, oh, boy. Boy, the Italians can cook. Oh, yeah, they can. They can cook. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Interesting world we're in, um, and uh, and that you know to bring it back a little bit to the book, um, that's been uh, a journey over the last year for myself and my wife, who's really the co-author. She should have been listed as a co-author, but the the all the the graphics were already done and everything, and there was just no way to fix that. Now I might be. Wrong, but wasn't this supposed to be released earlier last time? Because I had before. It was uh, November 11th or something. Yeah, I'm guilty. You pushed it back. Uh, Well, what happened? What happened, Doctor? It 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 just was so. It in trying to make sense out of what has happened. Um, uh, what we did was because we we haven't gotten anything for this. We had no advance or anything. Um, and we don't have any income anymore. You know, we, we, I've destroyed my business by speaking out. And so I decided uh, together with Jill that we would serialize it through Substack. And that's what really has happened is that um, even before the Rogan podcast, um, I, I had edited, been one of the people involved in editing Bobby Kennedy's book on Fauci. And after that, Tony Lyons asked, would I write one also? And um, and he assigned a ghost writer, and uh, I won't name names, but it just wasn't me. It just didn't feel right. And so Jill and I took it on, um, you know, as the main thing we did. And, uh, and what we tried really hard to do was help people make sense out of what we've all experienced and in so doing make sense for ourselves what's happened here um and and correct me if i'm wrong kind of because you've went through it but then when you regurgitate it from the beginning to end like in your book now you're you're seeing it for what it is for instance when i'm coding something i don't realize what i'm doing it's just it's what i do for work but then when I see the result, sometimes I have to go back to realize what I did. So in a sense with this, you're living through the COVID, you know, the vaccine, the 3,000 interviews asking the same question. The propaganda. The propaganda, the threats, everything else. But now you go back and look at it one step at a time. Yeah, and trying to put really, it together. Whew, that had to be difficult. Um, And so it just, it as, as we're working it, um, in trying to make sense out of it, more and more information comes out. The Deborah Burke's book comes out. The Scott Atlas book comes out. Peter Navarro's work. Um, so many things uh, um, get published. And 
so many great people doing investigative work all over the world, and particularly in the United States through Brownstone Institute and Epoch Times and just all these different channels. And in things, you know, you would you would so, so for instance, Ernst Wolf last uh, winter from Germany put out a great piece, and he's continued to follow this. That this is all really about um, the central banks and their problems that they encountered and were facing in twenty, excuse me, twenty nineteen, which looked like a very much like a two thousand eight scenario, only worse. Um, and they needed to find excuses to inject capital. Or the whole, there was a point in time when I just did not want to talk about the Great Reset, uh, right? And then, then I read, we read the book and, and dove into it, and there we have it. You know, you have to account for the role of the World Economic Forum and all this. Um, and then, you know, the, the reveals about, um, as I was just mentioning, uh, the um, National Security Security Agency and the Department of Homeland Security um, driving this. There's so many different layers. And so it, it just, you know, everything would come out. There's another chapter we have to do, another chapter about that, another chapter. And it just, and it got to the point where I finally delivered it to Tony Lyons. Um, and uh, and it was 450 in Microsoft Word. Um, and he looks oh, at that boy. thing and he's like, well, this is going to be a doorstop. Um, uh, you, you, we've got to, we've got to trim this thing down. Um, so what did it come down to? It's still uh, over 400 cited references and, and in the range of four to 450 printed pages, which is different from Microsoft Word pages. Well, yeah, a little bit it's, longer. It's still, it's still a, a major piece of work. Um, Broken into three sections. I use the metaphor of, of how a physician approaches the world, approaches their patient. Um, so there is, in as as a doc, old school doc, not today. I like old school. Uh, as an old school doc approaches, I don't want new you know, school. You, you go to the doc. Um, the as I was trained at Northwestern, which is one of the best clinical schools uh, in Chicago. Um, the first thing you do is you take a history and physical, and then you come up with the diagnosis, and then you come up with the treatment plan. So that's the way the book is written. The history and physical is basically first-person accounts of folks, particularly docs, in what they experienced. So, you know, uh, we have a chapter from Merrill Nass, a chapter from uh, Pierre Corey, a chapter from Paul Merrick, um, some stuff from me, etc. Um, so that kind of gives the hope was that people could could kind of live through it with us by by learning from those experiences, those first person accounts. How everything changed and and the way it was. Well, and and what what happened to us, um, what was done to us. You know, the the experience of having this these propaganda campaigns and the censorship and defamation and you know just so the people can can see, like for instance. Not most people don't know that um, Jill, Jill, and I got going on writing a book on January fourth of twenty twenty, when uh, we got this phone call from Michael Callahan, the CIA officer guy. Okay, um, 
And we wrote a book with Jill as the lead author, uh, well over 100 pages, well-referenced. She's a Ph.D. in public policy and biotechnology, so she's no slacker. Congratulations, Mr. Um, Mom. <laughs> uh, and, and so we put this book together, and, and she published, self-published on Amazon in the first week in February of 2020. Now, the conspiracy theorists think, oh, that must be proof that we knew about this long ago. No, it's just we work hard, um, and we can write. Gee, you work hard. Yeah. Nah. Old school. Old school. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so we put this thing out. And uh, it was doing well. It was written for our neighbors. We live in rural Virginia. It was written for the average Joe, you know, um, and Josephina of, you know, plant a garden and, you know, stockpile and, and use, alcohol, horses. use alcohol wipes on, you know, the airplane when you go on and that kind of stuff. Come long March, and the idea was because with Kindle— we could update it, and everybody would get an automatic update, so they wouldn't have to rebuy it or whatever. We could keep it fresh. We could keep information going to people. That was the idea behind this. We How'd that make, work? We weren't making any money. Amazon deplatformed <laughs> us in March, and and we could not get an explanation because they they have this policy. They will always let you fix things for self-publishing, at least before you know. Oh, there's porn on page fifty-two. You have to take that out, or whatever you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh. No, no explanation. And finally, you know, multiple emails back and forth. We got the explanation. You have violated community standards. Oh, jeez. First time we ever heard that. Nobody had ever heard that before. Point being, we've been, you know, living this little nightmare since the very beginning. Before, you know, the White House, Bill Gates says that he didn't even know about this until February. I don't know anybody believes that. Um, But... You know, the White House certainly wasn't spun up. Uh, um, yeah, so so that's the first part is the kind of first person to help people to see through our eyes um, and uh, experience it kind of vicariously. And then the second part is the diagnosis, which is where we run down all these rabbit holes of, you know, the WEF and, and uh, Central Bank and and the propaganda and the press and all this stuff, trying to make sense out of it. And then the last part is was the hardest part to write. You'll notice the, the bottom line there in the little letters and the better future coming. And that was, you know, we I, as we were coming, we came up with the title before we came up with the book. Um, <laughs> and uh, everybody thought, oh, that's a really good title. And uh, Bannon apparently loves the red cover and the graphics. Uh, <laughs> but I was like, this is pretty grim, you know. Uh, the lies my government told me. We need to soften this. You need a positive punchline. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> it has to. It has to close because I always I tried really hard all the way through this to give people hope. You not, did not to leave them in despair, and uh, um, so the better future coming. And that was the hardest part of the whole darn thing <laughs> was how, how, when you get into this, it's dark. Um, it's hard to see a better future. Um, it is. Everywhere you look, there's, there's, it just looks negative. It's dark. Um, and so that that was the hardest part. Um, the diagnosis of what went on and all these various spider webs that go everywhere, um, that's that's going to be written for the next three decades. Uh, you know, and this is really just kind of a first draft of history. But the, and in the book, it, it's personable too, right? I try. Yeah, I tried to write it from the heart instead of Jill. Um, 
so that we're we're more like having a conversation with the reader yeah. as, as friends. I was hoping that's how it would be because, you know, you could say this, that, whatever, but how did you feel, you know, when when you started seeing things weren't right, how did you, you feel as yeah. a vaccinologist with all this experience? What is going on here? Yeah. You know, like, how did you feel? And then one thing after another you're seeing and what? Yeah. You know. Yeah, so then the, the third part, um, I think that the big picture that I've heard from so many people all over the world, Tesslori is an example, or these uh, two Italians that I just think the world of um, that have formed uh, an organization called Apocrate, I-P-P-O-C-R-A-T-E org dot org, um, which is uh, the Italian spelling for Hippocrates, um, uh, Marl Rango and Irina Butcherlane um, have come together and uh, created this organization. The, the Italian docs have really been hammered. I mean, you think it's been bad here in the States. Um, uh, they, they created an organization with over 400 physicians and medical care providers that were providing early treatment, and they basically all got um, their licenses pulled. <laughs> okay. that, that is so crazy. Um, and uh, couldn't practice medicine, and, and it's, it's very much the socialized medicine world there. Um, and so what they did uh, was they didn't just go into their holes and lick their wounds. They created an organization uh, to empower people to get early treatment. And uh, there's actually a major case series now that is published, peer-reviewed literature, that shows how successful they were with that, with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and so many other things. And uh, just like the docs here, and that's part of what came together last fall was we all compared notes with each other. And uh, so they created this network, and then and then it kind of grew from that. And and it's akin to what Tess Laurie has done with World Council for Health. These groups all over the world um, trying to envision another future, a better future, where things aren't dominated by basically narcissist, psychopath leaders, which is kind that, of that's what, what it is. What we've got, yeah. Um, uh, you know, when it comes down to it. This podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Go to www.expressvpn.com, use code MSCS, and get 20% off your order. VPN is a power tool for your devices that enhances the internet. With it, you can do three really cool things. One, watch movies and TV from any of your devices fast and securely. Two, you can use parts of the internet that are blocked in certain countries. Three, you can keep your internet traffic private even when you're on an unsecured public network. That's www.expressvpn.com. Use the code MSCS at checkout and get 20% off your order. Are they psychopaths or are they sociopaths? Well, that's a question of genetics. Uh, you <laughs> know. One or the other, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a guaranteed <laughs> crap shot. So you're going to win. You're going to hit the ticket on one of them. Tomato, tomato, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, uh, so um, all over the world, people are trying to envision a new way of being, um, organizing ourselves in a more decentralized way. 
Uh, it's the opposite. Remember the World Economic Forum? We'll just say that, or the globalists. We have these euphemisms. Mm-hmm. Or Steve uh, Bannon gets credit, f- literally, mm-hmm. uh, for championing the term uniparty. Uh, but uh, it's all we're all talking about the same uh, um, beast uh, um, that believes that the nation state is an obsolete structure and that the only way forward for the world community is a one-world government um, run by a small cohort of, of people. Um, uh, and that is absolutely the charter behind uh, the World Economic Forum. And the only way to stop it, as we had touched on earlier, is think for yourself. True. But then, then as you move beyond that, I mean, we can all be preppers living in the foothills of the Shenandoah like I am <laughs> uh, now, right? my little <laughs> horse farm, uh, my little uh, sanctuary. And and if... Uh, I have to ask it, this. What got you into horses? Is that your therapy? Is that is that calming to you? Uh, it is absolutely calming. Um, you know, we could talk a lot about horses. Uh, we could do a whole segment on horses. <laughs> but um, it is... Uh, when I was young... Um, I decided that I didn't want to be so bookish. I made a conscious decision that I didn't want to just live in. The, I mean, I read all of Shakespeare when I was in sixth grade. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. I, I, um, <laughs> I was tracked with the gifted and talented program in the state of California. And I read Brave New World, 1984, uh, Death of uh, Socrates, all that classic stuff when I was in uh, sixth and seventh grade. Wow. That's, you know, that's so where for your me, mind was. That's, that's when that's why I was tracked. And I decided I wanted to live in the world. That was at the time when the back to nature movement was really happening in the 70s, mid 70s. Um, and uh, so you missed Woodstock, huh? <laughs> My wife's sister, I think, was there. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was an avid backpacker and rock climber. I did the Muir Trail in California from Mount Whitney to Yosemite, so that's the backwards See, way. See, you and Peter hide it. You and Peter are jacked under those suits. I told Peter because we had a picture. He had, remember he had the, yeah. the T-shirt on? He had the t- The only guy that could have a T-shirt on, slacks, belt, you know, like a T-shirt where you just got done running, and it looks right. <laughs> and he's jacked. I told him he's jacked. He's like, Tommy, Tommy. Both <laughs> yeah. you guys are jacked I, under those suits. I just, I just wanted to you know um not just be live, the, the live, book live in guy. the world yeah. yeah live in the world and uh and i loved i i spent two summers as a young man like uh 14 13 14 um uh on a dairy farm in eastern oregon that was owned by my aunt really which is where i really learned i mean dairy farmers the hardest working people in the world as far as i'm concerned that is a Wicked heart. You won't believe this. My mom forced me to get a job when I got in trouble at 19. And I actually worked on a, I would deliver the big barrels of chemicals to the farms. And I'd have to go in. And my mom, she forced me to work this for three months. And I'd have to go in where all the cows are and put the thing on the teats and drain drain the milk. Milk and carry it back to the truck. For three months straight, I had to do that. That it, 
Yeah, you, it's hard I didn't to know that. I for, for, first heard that yeah. one. All right. I know. She made me do it. It was either that or, or hear an Italian woman scream all day and night long. <laughs> I'll go do it, Mom. I yes, really ma'am. did. Yes, ma'am. Those were some hardworking yeah. men. Yeah, Whew. exactly. Really hardworking. Hardworking men. Yeah, so I picked up a love for horses then and then um, brought that back. We, My parents lived in the foothills north of Santa Barbara, uh, just at the far fringe of a town called Goleta, um, and uh, about four miles as the crow flies from Ronald Reagan's ranch. Mm. And um, back in the day, in the 70s, you could ride horseback all over the backcountry hills of Santa Barbara and all along the beaches, because um, the beaches were all owned by, in that part of Santa Barbara, were owned by the oil companies, Union Oil. And uh, if you were on foot, you were hippie, and you were as likely as not to get a load of rock salt in your butt. <laughs> um, but if you're on horseback, you were one of them. And so you had the run of the place. So cool. And so uh, Jill and I both had this love of horses. And it was actually uh, the, you know almost the day after I came back from the, doing the Muir Trail. And I was at that point, I was like, I need a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and And... And she shows up, and uh, um, and we borrow the neighbor's horses and, and um, start riding, and that's kind of been our passion ever since. Uh, you know, went through the period of getting trained where all I could do was just do school and, and all that kind of stuff. But then there was a moment. Um, I'm also a carpenter and a farmhand. I've you know. I don't know how many avocados I planted. Really? Uh, and I could I could set up your drip system uh, <laughs> and the fertilizer injectors and all that kind of stuff. And, and I've sprayed way too much glyphosate mm-hmm. in my life. Um, but uh, so, um, so we, I, we re- I rebuilt a house in Rockville because it was all that we could afford. It was... Uh, basically about to get condemned and it was in historic Rockville and I love the old shingle style arts and crafts Um, and so I redid it shingle style uh, and we made a boatload of money on it Uh, and um, you know I did it on credit cards Uh, (laughs) like um, we all do (laughs) and um, and then we're like okay now we got all this money we got sold the house where we're gonna live and we we Jill who is just a uh, a monster at using the internet to buy uh, property. Um, she found this place up in Frederick, Maryland, fifty-two acres, and uh, and she got there at the front of the line. Uh, there was a couple of contractors before her, and uh, they fell out with their offers, and we managed to get this thing. So now suddenly we got fifty-two acres, <laughs> and what are we going to do with it? And and we decided. Uh, well, let's live our dream. Uh, let's breed horses. And so we got into the horse breed that we could afford, that we liked, which was the Pertron Draft Horse. And I I took second place at the World Pertron Congress driving a team. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Congratulations. I'm, I'm, so that's another thing on my on my list of things. I'm a pretty good farrier. So You've uh, got a lot of checks on your bucket list. And I, and I am actually a teamster. Because that's the name of somebody that drives horses. So we started breeding Pertron. And then um, 
time went by, and uh, we've had five farms together now. This is our fifth. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we, we've redone it from raw land. It's talked about a little bit in the book. Um, you know, it was just hay fields. No, no, uh, no septic. I'm being careful. <laughs> no uh, septic, how, how no long? power, no water, no fences, no nada. How long does that take? We're now six years in. Six years in, huh? We got two houses, a really nice barn, arena, a lot of fence up, uh, and we're kind of turning it into a botanical park um, as well as a horse breeding facility. And we had transitioned to this Portuguese horse uh, called the Lusitano. Uh, So most of our horses are either imported from Portugal or Brazil or their first generation that we've bred. And we're now moving into our third generation and starting to really kind of lock in our breed type. But so that's, that's, you know, if, if early on people were saying, oh, you're doing this for attention and you're, you know, you're just a media hog and all that kind of jeb jabber. I looked at it like therapy, like therapy, you know, you're out there with the horse, horse for, doesn't know what's as, going on. As far as I'm concerned, I would way rather be messing around with the horses. <laughs> I'm sure you would. They don't know what's going on. They don't know this bullshit out, everything on TV. Yeah. Just hang with them. They they are you amazingly know? intuitive. Uh, and the Lusitano is a smart breed. Um, it's it's uh, really high demand for the, well, here we are in Miami Beach. Okay, Wellington is like right back there. Okay. Yeah, you got the polo club, everything. You're in horse that's dr- uh, land that's, over here. That's dressage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's what our breed is is really desired for. Um, we sell our foals for very good money when they drop. They're very high quality animals. And uh, we ship them all over North America. And there's basically only one buyer. Uh, it is it is a wealthy women. And it's there, it's there for art. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's that's okay. And we we produce a hand raised horse, custom product, carefully nurtured. You know, I'm there when they're born. Um, they get imprinted. Uh, we treat them really gentle, and they make great companions. So, you know, I'd I'd way rather do that. Didn't be doing this crap all the time, right? Yeah, and they and they um I'll tell you there's nothing like you go out in the pasture and they all come around you and they and they're touching you and sniffing you and you know, grooming you a little bit and that kind of stuff. They're your friends. Um and they they're just it, it's a it's transcendent. Um it's it's very much a Zen thing. Um, to just have that aura around you, I can't can't describe it. I dated this girl in high school. She had a bunch of horses, and I always remember going up to him. His name was Salvatore, Italian family, and we would give him corn on the cob, apples, apples. But it was so funny and cool to see because when it would eat, the teeth would Maybe. go up, and it would look like, you know, it looked like they were smiling at us. Yeah, you go, yeah. and we would just hammer it, and then you know she would put like a big thing of food in the bin. And that horse would look up and whoom, yeah, and just uncle, inhale it. It was just so cool. You they they absolutely them. smile. I used, yeah, I mean, teeth are all the way up. Now the only Before one... it even got it, when it saw the corner in the cob, you know, the teeth are up here. I just There's remembered, a... though, my uncle had two horses when I was a kid, and um, you have to clean their chute, the males. Uh, uh, gently put. Uh, and... <laughs> 
you have to clean your shoe because bugs and flies and whatever else is waxy residue of various sorts. And he, I just remember <laughs> I was a little kid seeing him go like this, and he's like pulling. I was like, oh god. <laughs> this yes. is totally off question, <laughs> yeah, but I just sure. want to know. When those flies are constantly landing on them, I used to try to get these flies off Horse Salvatore back when I was growing up. Does that drive them nuts, or they're just so used to it? I would see it, like, hitting them right here, and I'd be like, that little... The ones that bite, they like very much. Yeah, that's... that's, uh, um, Yeah, so... Yeah, so the ones that bite. (laughs) So I know it's completely off They don't like having them. Um, We use a... a, um, What's called a fly predator. It's a little tiny wasp. Um, and it's a biologic control, and we get them shipped every month. And um, they're, it's, they come in sawdust with some pellets, and you walk around the farm and put them on the horse poop, and they hatch, and uh, they parasitize the fly larva. And so if you stay on that, you can really keep the flies down, which you need to anyhow because we're living on a horse farm. Otherwise, the kitchen is full of flies. I love the ecosystem. I love how the ecosystem works. It's always one thing that's protecting another thing, another thing, another thing to continue. It's like just, the bee people we had. Yeah, like the bee. We had bee, these bee people and that turned. I never knew how important bees were. They're way important. And how many things bees are used in. Right, Rob? I mean, that was nuts. Yeah, I mean, basically, if we lose them, we're, we're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah. yeah. Quite. But me putting it. Putting Dr. Malone is like, yeah. that is quite right. Yes. <laughs> we're fucked. We're fucked. <laughs> yeah. No, we're, we're, yeah. they're, they're crucial. Yeah. So, so horses, um, I've kind of been, um, horses and farming have been a way to keep sane in an insane world. Uh, and it's something that my wife and I share together. Uh, as we do everything in our lives, but uh, um, you know, for us, and and this is kind of in the the transition to the last part of the book. The book has got a section in there about victory gardens and growing your own and things like that. But um, there isn't anything like it, though. When you go out there, and and I can't grow anything; they always die. But even just just to put something in there and see it start to sprout. Yeah, getting your fingers dirty. So, yeah, you, but you made something, even though they always die because I forget to water it or something stupid. But. So, so I, I cite uh, uh, Voltaire's Candide, which has one of the concluding themes: we we must all go work in the garden. It's good for our souls, um, and that's that's uh, for sure. The horses and and working the land, um, uh, and swinging a hammer. And uh, we've got a bunch of old buildings. The the studio now that we're broadcasting, I'm uh, now broadcasting from, duh, 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 <laughs> um, uh, it's an old pig barn. Uh, and when we bought the place, it was covered in vines. You couldn't even see it was there. And um, the front part had been bashed in because somebody had backed a truck into it. It's a cinder block uh, building. Nice. And um, and we've totally <laughs> redone it now. It's it's uh, you know go. open beam. Uh, kind of feels very old world. You feel like you're in Spain or something when you go into it. Uh, tile floor, and we've got a green room, and and then the got the green room and everything. Yeah, it's so that's cool. awesome. It's so cool, and it's all fiber back to the Starlink commercial. Yeah, and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it's been one, you know, one step at a time, uh, gradual, gradual, just doing it. We because of the draft horses. 
we got to spend a fair amount of time with people from the Amish and Mennonite communities. I, was ask I that. think that's where we grew up. Ask that. I yeah, grew yeah. up in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, which is right by Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And if you've been there, right, whenever right by Intercourse, Intercourse right by correct. Yeah. Blue ball, and Blue Ball, and Blue, and blue ball, ball, baby. Yeah. yeah, when we would yeah. go to and, Lancaster, and bird in hand. Yeah. yeah, yes. When I would uh, get taken to the mall if I did something good with sports or whatever, we would go to uh, 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 Park City Mall. No, Park City Mall. And on the way, it's a two-lane highway, 55, and there's a horse and buggy. buggy yeah. And when I say that down here, nobody believes me. But there's really, like, multiple horse and buggies on your way to Lancaster. Yeah, so so we used to hang with those people a lot. They, and could, they could build shit like you've never seen. And they, make so, great baked goods, shoe fly pie. Oh, so, yeah, the shoe fly pie. So that's that was one of the, you know, in this wor- weird world that I've lived in and wandered <laughs> through over time. Especially um, now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's gotten weirder. Um, but uh, they're like the last ones that can make a small farm work. Yep. And they do it by kind of doing a little bit of everything. And they work all the time. And they just keep at it. And they build the best stuff. If you ever want a dresser or a bed to last, it will last 30 generations, those guys. And the everybody thinks they're a bunch of Luddites, but what they don't understand is there's reasons. Now, the, a lot of folks also think the Amish, they have these ideas about them living in this, like, perfect world, and that is absolutely not true. There's drug addiction problems, all kinds of problems that go on in that community. And even, you know, we knew in the draft horse community, there were Amish farmers that would uh, prostitute out their children. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's. It's not all happy, happy. All I said was that the the wood is good that they make. Yeah, they make good no. wood. But, and but that there's, pie. there's a lot good there. Yeah. And um, but what you know, so people think, well, they live in this cart and buggy world, and the real Amish generally uh, won't use anything that has a rubber tire on it. Just to illustrate the point. And that just seems really kooky. You know, why wouldn't you use a rubber tire? The reason is because rubber tires cause the fragmentation of the family. Because when you have rubber tires, people, the children, can leave and go away long distances, and it splits the family up, and they don't want to have that. Hmm. Did you ever know that growing up? We grew up there. I yeah. never knew that. So that's that's, that's the logic of not having rubber tires. Wow. So the point is hmm. and that a lot of the things that you see and you think, well, that's kooky. Why are they doing that? It's just there's a different logic. They're, they have a different priority stack from us. Um, and uh, so a lot of things that, that don't make sense actually make sense if you allow yourself to see through their eyes. Now, it's hard to get to do that because the likes of you and I are English, right? Right. We're, we're the enemy, largely, really, in a, you know, culturally. We're outsiders. Um, but that was one of the beauties of breeding the drafts is that we kind of got brought into that community a little bit. I'd be interested to see how many, and maybe you know the answer just because of your background with everything, how many of the Amish or Mennonite community died from COVID? So that's a fascinating question, and there's a related question about the um, fundamentalist Jews, uh, particularly in New York and New Jersey. And um, the answer is that the first wave hit them, particularly the elderly, 
but didn't hit him that bad, uh, and which is what the data are now showing all over the world, is that um, the mortality and morbidity in the absence of Western medicine mm-hmm. looks pretty good. <laughs> really good. Uh, it's not so bad at all um, compared to what we thought. And I got, somebody asked me the other day, what did you get wrong, Dr. Malone? And I didn't answer the most important one, so I own that. It shows my own blinkers, to use a draft horse metaphor. Um, I got caught up in all the fear porn, too, and I thought this was going to be a lot more lethal than it was. So that's something I got wrong early on. Did you think it was going to be a super virus? I thought it was going to be a lot more pathogenic than it was. It was going to cause a lot more mortality. And that's a whole other rabbit hole. How did that happen? Um, How did I become convinced and so many other people become convinced? And I'm, I'm positive now that we were all subjected, including Michael Callahan, by the way, um, the CIA gentleman, were all subjected to Chinese propaganda in a big way. Uh, so whether or not they, you know, I, I'm not there with this being an intentional release. Um, I'm My mental space is that this is an inadvertent lab leak. It, sh- and it you know, was the product of research that shouldn't have been done, but it was absolutely an engineered pathogen but it was most likely inadvertently released. But then once it was out sometime around September 2019 or maybe even earlier, um, then uh, the opportunity was seized upon uh, to um, take advantage of that by the CCP. And they absolutely pushed things into the West and into the Western response that destroyed our economies. I mean, we're, we're going to be living with this for a long time. The repercussions are still there. But um, so, so yeah, the Amish um, seemed to recover pretty well, which also the um, more fundamentalist Jewish population did. And they were pissed. And one of the things that I found, that so this is another one of these, you know, personal journey things that I don't talk about in the book is um, a guy named Eric Feintuch, uh, who lives up there, who's kind of on the fringes of the fundamentalist community up there, um, Jewish, uh, early on asked me to testify before the, a rabbinical court. So a bunch of old gray beards, it's like having <laughs> 10 Gandalfs around the table, oh, right? <laughs> um, uh, uh, about about the, the jabs, about the vaccines. And in particular about issues relating to fertility, because they knew, um, for this odd reason, uh, who would have known? I didn't know. So in that community, the rabbis, um, I, I, I got to be careful here with my words, okay? They carefully track the menstrual flow of the young women. They live and die by that almost, right? I mean, that's their big thing. Is one of them. One of their big things. Yeah. And so they they actually, these old men sit around and actually inspect menstruation uh, um, as evidenced by cotton cloth. Okay? Without going too far. Um, And they knew that uh, things were not right uh, after the vaccination. And uh, so they had, I, w- I was asked to testify, as did others, Ryan Cole and, and many others. And very early on, they came out with a 
clear, unequivocal statement uh, that these vaccines uh, were not to be used for children and were not recommended in young adults, particularly young women, because of the reproductive risks. And at the time, the CDC was in complete denial. And the party line was essentially that these reports about menstrual irregularities in the press and people personally, you know, uh, reporting postmenopausal women starting bleeding after taking the jab and women of reproductive age um, losing their cycle <coughs> or having um, prolonged bleeding uh, that lasted for months. And the the way this was presented in the press and unfortunately from my medical peers was this was hysterical women. They went right there to 1950s language about women being hysterical causing um, these menstrual irregularities. And now we know that those rabbis were dead on. Dead on. <clears throat> you mess with their, you don't want to say cult, but you mess with their group that they <clears throat> they live by that. They they know when that menstrual cycle is coming. They know when it's time to have a kid to keep the group going. And when you mess with that, you Reper better believe they're going to be there. Reproductive health is very important <laughs> yeah. to them. Yes, it is. <laughs> I read quite a few papers on it, and they were not happy. Yeah, no. And then when they put the mandates in, shit. They, they were like, you know, no. Now, kind of switching a little bit. When you got data for the Zika virus, right, okay, compared that data that you had gotten, worked on it, vaccine, to the data that you had looked at initially with COVID. Okay, so um, we put out some of the key papers in Zika early on. Um, and actually, uh, um, I put out the first... A real threat assessment um, for Zika, together with Michael Callahan, as I recall, um, and another person that had been CIA uh, seminal um, in a project called Argus that was the CIA's first um, data fusion in public health program. Uh, and uh, Zika um it's hard to express if you're somebody who has the skill set um, and the willingness and ability to make a difference with these outbreaks. Um, the motions that run through you when um, one of them comes to four. Uh, it's you, you, many of us are kind of adrenaline junkies. And in the past, I've been one too with these outbreaks. I've been through many of these. Um, and, uh, you know, you get the notice, like Callahan calling me on January 2nd, 2020, saying, get your team going. We got a problem. What did he say on that call? He just said, we have a big problem? He said that there's a uh, novel coronavirus circulating in Wuhan, and it looks to be a, a significant threat. And uh, you should get your team uh, spun up uh, to respond to it, um, as you had before. And what are you thinking at this time when he says that? Are you thinking just another Zika type of thing, or are you thinking? Well, Zika was not. So that's where I was kind of going. Yeah. Was um, Zika? My experience of Zika early on 
um, as the data were coming out of Brazil was um, thinking of my two, our two children, Jill and myself, our two sons and their wives. Um, we had no grandchildren at the time. And uh, thinking about the risk to our children and our potential grandchildren of a mosquito-borne ubiquitous virus that would move up through uh, the continental United States, starting from the um, southern uh, zones here here in, in Miami, um, uh, and would cause uh, this profound birth defect of microcephaly. Oh. And, um, and the sense of threat uh, um, was the same perhaps even more so. Um, when, when you get these calls, you're, from me, I'm thinking about my family, my wife, my friends, um, not so much person, that's just how I'm wired, not so much about me, but how is this gonna impact on the people that really matter to me around me? And um, what can I do to mitigate that, to stop that from happening? And so, um, yeah, there, there was, a sense that because we'd had MERS and we had SARS-1 and SARS-1 had a fairly high uh, mortality. Uh, MERS not so much uh, and it wasn't that infectious but SARS-1 was and um, so uh, I mean SARS-1 basically is what catalyzed the Canadian government to get into the infectious disease and vaccines business in a big way in respiratory virus big way. Uh, so um, my my reaction in both was a significant dread and sense of threat. In Zika, um, it was no one could make sense out of it, and and I think I may have been one of the first, or certainly one of a small number, because I had these connections, and I was just and I had good connections in Brazil. I'd spent time in Brazil on a a path project on vaccination. So I had contacts at Anvisa, the Regulatory Affairs Group, Institute Butantan, um, their kind of uh, research uh, NIH-like entity, et cetera. And so I was, you know, calling and calling Callahan and others, um, you know, what was he seeing in Panama uh, and trying to put the pieces together uh, to figure out what had changed between uh, the Zika that first appeared in the South Seas and was and was now in Brazil, and how did it, where did it enter Brazil? How did it work up to Pernambuco? I traced that. There's a huge Navy Harbor um, that does a lot of international shipping, and it seems to have come there and then moved up a highway to Pernambuco, probably through prostitutes, and it may have actually come in uh, through, <laughs> the, funny. through the canoe races <laughs> that they had, which brought um, prostitutes from all over the South Seas into that part of Brazil. Um, yeah, so that's just <laughs> wow. the, the truth of it. Okay. Remember the president of Brazil? <laughs> you know, we see our campaigns here commercial. His commercial was two, I mean, two girls in thong bikinis was his commercial to be president. He ended up getting Bolsonaro. shot. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he's a... He's a, a character, huh? Yeah, rather. <laughs> um, uh, Brazilian women. Uh, so... Um, that's that's one of the things that the Portuguese are jealous of, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the uh, Portuguese also say, you know what the problem is with Brazil? 
What is that? Brazilians. In <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> any case, uh, so. Um, so this thing's moving. So we, we picked yeah. up, you know, and, and the big question was why the uh, encephalopathy, why the microcephaly, the birth defects in the brain. And, um, and there was a case of a Hawaiian uh, U.S. resident that had spent time in Brazil and came back and gave birth to a baby with microcephaly. Uh, so that was, that was really worrisome. Uh, and the CDC was in denial that Zika could be sexually transmitted. And yet there was a clear report um, from a CDC staffer who had had sexual transmission with his wife. Um, so that was another, you know, classic CDC sure, killer move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I came down in the last publication we put out, um, and the Brazilians hated me for it. They basically stopped talking to me after that. Um, uh, uh, Brazil uses thalidomide to treat um, leprosy. Uh, which is the, like the cheap leprosy treatment, and they produce thalidomide at huge amounts. And um, in the Indian population of you know the poor of Pernambuco, which you know the slums in Brazil are the slum slums, truly impressive. Um, yeah, truly you know, impressive. Yeah. Uh, you know, even by South African standards, um, they're huge uh, and poor. And um, so there had been a lot of Indian influx into the Pernambuco region having to do with the oil and, and building and that kind of stuff. And um, apparently it's the norm in those communities to share drugs. So if somebody was to get a prescription for thalidomide for their leprosy, they would normally share it with the other members of their family. And so there was so much crossover, I thought, between the symptoms that are associated, the birth defects associated with leprosy, I'm sorry, with, with uh, thalidomide dosing, um, and what was being reported with Zika, that I thought that there's a good chance that you had an interaction, a cofactor interaction between the low-dose thalidomide that might be, people might be getting from their other family members, even though they were, the, you know, the pregnant were not being prescribed it, um, uh, and the virus. That was my working hypothesis. Since then, what's come out is that there was widespread deployment of a new MMR vaccine at that time. At that time. And that may be, that is the alternative explanation that, uh, for instance, Bobby Kennedy and Children's Health Defense advocate. So something happened there. um, And uh, so in this case, there, so you want to kind of go there, what happened with COVID. yeah, because I, I brought up the Zika because I'm just curious to know the data that you had gotten then with Zika versus the initial, in my opinion, bullshit data that you had <coughs> with COVID. So the, the big difference in Zika was that I was being able to call up people directly in Brazil yeah. and say, what are you seeing? Other physicians, um, primary health care workers, people in the R&D community and say, what are you seeing here? What are you seeing there? And I developed good working relationships. And I and I helped some of them get stuff published because it was hard to get stuff published. And so, you know, there was a good interaction there. Um, so I had more primary. In the case of corona, uh, what I had was um, 
because I was right on top of it from the very beginning. Like I downloaded the sequence for the Wuhan seafood market virus on January 10th oh, wow. when it was uploaded and started. That's what got my team going. I built, um, you know, crystal structure models of, of the key uh, proteins and then started applying the cool new computational tools to identify drugs that would potentially inhibit. You know, so that's, a, you know, cool stuff. But, now at, the, at this point, do you have the Chinese protocols yet or no? The, the Chinese protocols. Are you protocols. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's interesting. You, good I'm, not, I'm not a complete good. idiot over no, here. Very few people pull that. Um, yeah. So, um, no. Not at that time. Not at that time. Okay. It was like, that was like in February. And I had a client um, that had, I'd done a little bit of work for, a Chinese client. And I may have actually been infected by one of their workers rather than in Boston. Damn it's, IT. It's like, yeah, I first I, I visited her and that team and then like got on a jet the day after and then it was four days later that it just hit me like a hammer. Okay. So which one was it? I don't know. I was staying right across from the corporation that ostensibly was the the ground zero for the Boston outbreak. Um but you know Whatever it was, I got Wuhan one. Um, but uh, so I had this contact, and um, and I asked them, you know, could they that I I had heard that they had a treatment protocol. Um, uh, the CCP did an official treatment protocol, and I and I asked them for help. Could you possibly get it? Uh, and and they pulled it, um, and. Uh, the front part of it was translated, which was the Western medicine part. And then the back part, which was the traditional Chinese medicine, was still all in Mandarin. Isn't that interesting? So huh? I, couldn't, I couldn't decipher that. And then I sent that off to uh, um, Health and Human Services through Callahan. Um, I, that was, I'm pretty sure that was their first uh, intel on on that, and I also sent it into my buddies at Defense Threat Reduction Agency, uh, um, and uh, it clearly outlined the use of chloroquine as one of the key treatment strategies. Which is hydroxychloroquine is just a s slight derivative of chloroquine, same mechanism of action. But, but early on, though, right? <clears throat> it's only effective early on. Yes, yeah. just on. Yeah, you will. It, well, like with all these things, once you're, I mean, the use of remdesivir, an antiviral, in late stage COVID in hospitalization, <laughs> is just stupid. It makes no sense at all, unless you want to sell, unless you're Gilead, right? And you want to sell drugs. Yeah. Um, but or Tony, you know, because I guess you're working for Gilead. I don't know. Um, how that works. Uh, but, he's got a pretty nice house, so. Yeah, well, yeah, he's made, the documentation's <laughs> come in, he's made a lot of money over the last three oh, years. Yes, yeah. I don't know how that happened. I don't know, maybe we'll <laughs> find out one day. <laughs> Must have been royalties. I guess um, so. Yeah, so, so. Um, yeah, so. A gentle way to put it. Um, uh, yeah, so I did get that protocol, I did circulate it in, um, uh, and kind of in parallel I'd heard about this guy uh, I think it was in Long Island um, this Jewish guy um, that was doing this early treatment uh, um, uh, with the zithromycin and hydroxychloroquine um, named, named Zevisalenko um, and now now we know in retrospect he's the one that wrote the letter to Trump 
that convinced Trump uh, to tell Peter Navarro to throw the switch on um, collecting hydroxy and making it available. Um, and he's the one that put together the really nice video clip that we've also put in our Substack. In our, I, I wrote up um, kind of a eulogy for him and put together a video uh, when he passed away. And he wow. really well documented that um, uh, there was a conspiracy, I don't know what else to call it, uh, between Rick Bright, who I've known for years, um, who was head of BART at the time, and Janet Woodcock, um, who was, you know, at that point kind of in charge of the drug branch of Operation Warp Speed, to uh, make it so that hydroxychloroquine would not be generally available and to circumvent the will of the president. Um, and, you know, whatever you think of Donald J. Trump, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, I don't care, uh, to have administrative state actors um, conspiring to directly circumvent the will and direction of the President of the United States is just wrong. Um, and it absolutely happened. And um, Rick Bright is on videotape, you know, owning it. That's insane. Have you ever seen anything like that Nothing. before? Anything this close whole, to it? This whole thing, all the way through, soup to nuts, has blown my mind. And my colleagues also. I mean, I've had people come up to me because, you know, this is what I do. I do clinical research, regulatory affairs, yeah. you know, push paper, write grants, <laughs> um, and uh, go to meetings and, you know, blah, 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 and try to follow the rules and, you know, so that I don't get... Uh, reprimanded and get a 43 warning letter and get blacklisted, you know, and just try to stay in the straight and narrow, you know, the way the rules are supposed to be, the way I've been taught. Uh, and um, as have a lot of my colleagues, and they come up to me and they say, what are we going to do now? Our, our industry has been destroyed uh, um, because the willingness of whoever the entities are behind this, and maybe it's Homeland Security, to basically um, blow through all the rules. They don't care. Um, the rules of informed consent, uh, the rules of uh, you know non-clinical um, testing before you enter humans, the rules of uh, you know right and proper clinical trial structure, um, shutting down the trials, vaccinating the controls. All that stuff, um, you know, if in this new world now, there's, it's like there's no boundaries. They, they can do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. And how do you operate in that? I don't know. <clears throat> we've, been, we've been saying this this whole time. You know, how can a company like Pfizer, you know, they did it with the arthritis drug. I forget what the name of it was. I know you know. What was the name of the yeah, arthritis? Yeah, you know? but I know what you're talking about. <clears throat> Killed however many gazillion people. Go in. Okay, Pfizer, $10 billion. Well, they made $200 billion on it. They don't care. Go home. It's a cost of doing business. Yeah. Oxycontin. Oh, we need to add the oxy to it, so we need to extend the patent, right? The doctors call, hey, uh, Pfizer, this isn't working. Give them more. It's not addictive. Next thing you know, boom, you got 10,000 gazillion people addicted to Oxy. You got the opiate pandemic. Then they go into court again. Oh, $20 billion fine and walk out. Anyone else does anything close to that, they're done for. They just go pay $20 billion, $30 billion every year, it seems. So 
Uh, my question, this, is, I, this is the big thing that I think is, and I was talking to Bannon about this the other day. Um, I don't have proof. Who who could coordinate such a persuasive, pervasive global propaganda campaign like we've seen? Um, I don't think the CIA could do it. Um, Bigger. It's it's somebody has spent a boatload of cash um, and influence because they've corrupted the medical societies, they've corrupted the journals, they've corrupted the medical schools. It is uh, the hospitals, and it's all over the world. Media, everything. How how could that now with media? You know, we've seen those clips. Sponsored by Pfizer. Yeah. Right? Well, um, they're, they're the ones paying for them to be on TV. They're the ones paying for the elections. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I suspect without proof, this is a hypothesis, that when the dust settles on this thing, we're going to find out that the hand of Pfizer has been all over this, all over the world. That's crazy. Because it would have to be something, like you said, it couldn't, it has to be something huge to to pull this off. This isn't. This is like nothing the world has ever seen. No, and, and and then the after effect, and the after effect, and then you just keep piling things on top of and the, this. And the hard part. So I, I like to say, it's really hard to tell to differentiate between incompetence and nefariousness. Mm-hmm. You know, wickedness versus incompetence. It's really hard to tease that apart. Um, it's also really hard to tease apart. Um, there's there's no question in my mind that the Five Eyes Alliance has played a role in this. Um, you know, this consortium of Western intelligence agencies that's all does this kind of a scratch. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours arrangement. Because um, the CIA can't, you know, do their nefarious tricks against American citizens here in the continental United States, but uh, MI5 and 6 can, right, and mm-hmm. vice versa. So there's that kind of stuff going on. And then and then we were just starting to touch on it. There's growing abundant evidence that the CCP um, acted through a variety of channels to push propaganda into the West and to push the CCP solutions into the West, which caused the West to just destroy their economies. Okay. I mean, talk about soft power and, you know, um, the art of war, Sun Tzu. Yeah. Um, it's a masterstroke. Okay. So. Machiavelli the prince. Is it, is it, you know, how much is CCP? Some is, for sure. How much of it, because, you know, they, the, the WEF um, holds their summer meetings in China. Okay. It's like, people always think WEF is Davos. Okay. No. It's it's got three meeting places. There's Davos in the desert, there's Davos in Switzerland in the winter, and then there's the rotating two cities in China that they do the summer um, WEF meetings, and the CCP is integrally involved in the WEF. Okay, hmm. so it's like you can't sort all these things are all intertwined, and you know Gates is intertwined in all that. It's you can't you can't you can't untangle it all. Um, and then, then you've got the big pharma. Um, and so how, how I, 
I can't get to the bottom with the data we have right now of of what what who was really the puppet master here or was it really you know back we, we referenced at the start of this conversation this Brett Weinstein Dark Horse podcast at the end of which it's clipped in the long the short versions everybody clips this part out in the end Brett does this appeal um to Elon Musk, he's like Elon, you know, please buy Pfizer. So he basically <laughs> says, okay, um, uh, and and and, but he poses this question, you know, what's what's behind all this? Uh, and it was the first time that I really had to encounter that and think about it. Um, and my reflexive response was, it's an emergent phenomena from multiple um, variables, multiple factor um, uh, uh, phenomena that's occurring. And I think that probably was right. I think that we probably had a bunch of trends that have developed over decades, all converging at one time on a situation where a lot of people saw opportunity and and they did what they could to take advantage of it. Um, but... Uh, and they did. Dr. Malone, if you think about it, they did take advantage of it. Biggest transfer of upward transfer of wealth in the history of the world. Um, I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. Uh, we, we will probably live out the rest of our lives in a post-COVID um, reorganized world uh, for whatever that means. And that gets back a little bit to the better times ahead. What is that? What are the better times ahead? Um, and uh, I hope, I hope they can be um, a world in which we care for each other more, um, and we don't let the globalists and and the economists and the banks define us just as economic units and as numbers and things to be optimized and you know useless eaters and all of this useless eaters that's a great mm. it's a great way to explain it yeah, yeah. that's their language yeah um, uh, <laughs> um you know the the idea this is one of the deep paradoxes about all this is is what we're being told about this next fourth industrial revolution which is what they're focused on um, which they describe as the fusion of man and machine, and this gets into transhumanism, uh, is a world in which we will have significant excess labor that um, uh, by going to robotics and machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence, um, uh, and um, extremely broad penetrating data uh, um, we will not need uh, so many workers. Um, we will not need the physicals. Uh, and um, therefore, during this transition period in which they talk about the need for a depopulation agenda, whether or not the jabs are part of that... Yeah. Um, well, it certainly okay. seems like it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so... Um, during that period, we will need to have universal basic income, basically to keep people from revolting, which would be managed, of course, using social credit and central bank digital currency to evaluate that. you. Um, right. Yeah, to discern what you know what 
you get allocated and how you're supposed to spend it, and you'll be told, you know, by when to spend it on what things, etc. Yeah, we had pulled up an article on um, uh, <clears throat> your credit score would be based on your browsing hi- browsing history. Yeah, yeah, right. Which that, that which, was insane. Yeah. Um. Uh. So. Uh. In in that world, they the the projection is in the fourth industrial revolution that we will have all this surplus labor, and so we have to do things to mitigate, keep people from revolting between now and the other side of the fence where we have sufficient depopulation that it's no longer a problem. Hmm. The paradox is, and you see it, I'm sure, here in Miami, we see it all over the Western world, somehow there's not enough labor. And yet they, they, so for instance, I talked to you, I'd spent some time with a bunch of dairymen a couple weeks ago in Nashville, which is an interesting thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they're all going robotic. They're massive, massive dairy farms that are all going to robotic milkers. Um, why are they going to robotic milkers? Because they can't get labor. And yet the, the rationale we're being fed is we're going to have excess labor because everything's going robotic. But in the real world, the physical world, people are saying we're having to go robotic because we can't get enough labor. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And I can't tell you how many times since this whole COVID thing, I've went to the car dealership who I'm friends with the the owner and he would take the car and in two hours he'd be like, okay, the oil change is done or you have a flat tire. Since this whole thing, he's like, Tommy, I don't have any workers. Went to another place where I know the guy. I don't have any workers. Have you dealt with that, Rob? Yeah, it's a lot. Like we're yeah. talking an um, auto mechanic. Good, good luck getting your your the leaks on your roof fixed, or your <laughs> plumbing done, or electrical job, or whatever. A, a table. When I tried to get another table made, the guy was like, "I'm I'm three months booked." You know, a quality guy. Yeah. Called another quality guy. I'm four months out. I'm like, I'll give you double. I'm four months out, buddy. There's nothing I can do. So I don't know what the hell, where they're getting this excess labor because every time I go to get something yeah. to work, there is nobody. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I don't get it either. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that we're being told. Well, actually, I'm starting to get it now after I'm talking to you. It's starting to all make sense. Well, it's, thanks. It's, it is, which is not good. Yeah. No, not, not good. good. Yeah. Not good at all. Yeah. Why didn't we ever hear about the DNA vaccine here? Why, why do you hear about it in India? You, you heard about it in China. Why in U.S. we don't hear DNA vaccine? DNA vaccine as opposed to RNA vaccine. Same same thing? No. Well, I'm I'm trying to figure out what you're saying. So, like on the news, you mean I I never hear DNA vaccine. Okay, when I read India, when I read stuff about China, they always refer to DNA vaccine. So, am I just confused with it? Yeah, like that. Yeah. Um. So, here's the backstory to this. Yeah, please. If you, this has confused me for nine months. Um, so DNA is this double-stranded, more stable molecule uh, that in order for it to be turned into protein, to guide, to direct the little biorobots that make protein, okay, that are called ribosomes that exist in the... So we're going to go back, and I'm going to give you a metaphor. Okay. Fried egg. A fried egg is a cell. Imagine it, Okay. The yellow part is the nucleus. That's where the DNA lives. The white part 
is the cytoplasm. That's where the little protein manufacturing machinery is. The little crispy stuff at the very edge, that's the cytoplasmic membrane, except for that's a two-dimensional thing, and it's actually three-dimensional. Okay? So metaphor for a cell. DNA lives in the yellow part, the nucleus. And if you want to use DNA to cause your cell to become a little manufacturing plant for your vaccine, your personal vaccine, okay, and a bunch of your cells, that DNA has got to get across that barrier, that crispy part on the outside of the fried egg, and it's got to get all the way through the white part, get into the yellow part, which has got another membrane, okay, it's got to get through into that yellow part, and then it's got to be um, somehow activated. It's got to find all the little special proteins that it needs to make RNA. The RNA has got to get back out into the yellow part, white part. It's got to come across that other membrane, and it's got to find those little biorobots, okay, that then make the protein that is the spike protein. Spikes. Okay. Mm. Okay. That's that's how the DNA would work. And the RNA has got the same information content. It's less stable. It's only one strand, not two, wrapped around each other. Okay. And all it's got to do is get it to the white part. It's got to get across that crispy bit and into the white part, and then it can find those little biorobots and make the spike protein. Ta-da. Okay. It doesn't have the penguin walk like the DNA one. Uh, well put, okay. <laughs> and so it's it's more. It appears to be significantly more efficient. And the way things happened, um, I came up with these ideas about using gene therapy for vaccination purposes back when I was, uh, you know, twenty eight, at the Salk Institute, um, which was actually a kind of a bad. St- news story. I wanted to be a gene therapist, and um, things happened in the lab, and I was one of the first to realize, perhaps the first, that gene therapy wasn't going to work because the immune response to the foreign protein, which your body doesn't know is a good protein, it just knows it's a different protein, and so it attacks it. It's like, oh, no. Uh, There goes my career. What are you going to do about that? (laughs) Um, And uh, so the answer was, well, I had some experience in vaccines, and I said, oh, we could Some, use this huh? to make we could use this to make vaccines. Yeah, the lab I was in as an undergraduate uh, was right at the forefront of the AIDS thing, um, and building an AIDS vaccine. So, um, so unbelievable. Uh, that's unbelievable. That's a whole other story. Uh, it is. That's so unbelievable. There's a there's a whole another <laughs> rabbit hole down that one. Um, and uh, so, so I came up with these ideas, and and I had built this whole kit of how to make large quantities of RNA and slip it into cells and be able to show that it would make protein. And I was using the firefly, the gene for the firefly tail that makes it glow. Mm-hmm. It's called luciferase. I'm sorry, it has nothing to do with the devil. And it's still, it's that's what Pfizer used uh, to demonstrate where this uh, RNA goes and where it makes protein. Same stuff. Okay, they're still using it today. There's been some modifications, and no, I did not design or work on these vaccines. <laughs> just getting that Making clear. That clear, right? Yeah, just get it clear. Um, uh, Stu Peters, take note. Uh, and um, so, but either DNA delivery or RNA delivery could potentially be used to generate an immune response, even though neither one of them were very good, not good enough 
for gene therapy. Not good enough to cure your muscular dystrophy in your child. Okay? Because it only gets a very few number of cells. But good enough to make an immune response. As if your cells were infected with virus, but there's no virus. Okay? That's the idea. It's real simple. It's actually really easy when you bake it down. Yeah. Um, uh, so... Um, I had these ideas at the Salk. Um, patents were filed, and I got caught as a 28-year-old in crossfire between the University of California and Salk Institute over who was going to own what, and people thought they were going to make a ton of money Jeez. and become rich and famous. And I was just run over like a steamroller. I ended up with a nervous breakdown and a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, which kind of still... It's hard, it's hard to hear that. Um, that's the way things are. <clears throat> yeah. What are you going to do, right? And not, and I'm not the but only you, one. You Happens didn't give up. A lot of graduate students, uh, you know, and postdocs get just treated like dog dirt, um, and that's the unfortunate reality of modern big science. And the Salk Institute at the time was big science. It was like eight or nine Nobel laureates plus Jonas Salk there. Yeah. It was. It was. That's why I was there. Okay. A place to go. Yeah. Um. Uh. And I left and joined a little startup called Vical. And uh, the technology was reduced to practice. That means we actually jabbed mice, showed that they made an immune response. Oh, we actually did some tests. Oh, okay, real tests. Yeah. That you normally would, right? Well, um, uh, which the press ignores that we did that. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> and filed a bunch of patents. Which those, is also ignored. Which is also ignored, but they issued. Um, and Vical was, I was, I was given, I was basically, because I'd been collaborating with their new vice president when I was at the Salk and he was at Syntex, he convinced the investors, uh, to, um, allow me to build a little skunk works, capitalized a small little pilot project in the company because outside of their business model, um, and budgeted that. I think the total budget was under thirty thousand dollars. I my salary was nineteen thousand dollars per year. As I said, you care. Um, and uh, um, uh, and within a few weeks, because I brought all my stuff over from the Salk, it was working. And we had another big paper. That's another story that that the RNA alone um, and the DNA alone could cause gene expression in the mice and it could be used for vaccination and then they were sitting on this intellectual property and it was outside of their business model Vical was antivirals and calcitonin analogs that's the name okay and so and and I wanted to go back and finish my med last two years of med school um and they went and shopped the tech and it got bought eventually by a company called Merck. Oh. Uh, and Merck uh, cooked a deal. The deal was that they would buy it for a good amount of money. Um, uh, it was like $30 million or something. But uh, they wanted to be able to take credit for the discoveries in the work. <laughs> and I had signed the agreement, you know, as a young idiot. Um, that all my rights went to the company. Uh, I got one U.S. dollar for it. That's <laughs> all I ever got. So those that say I got rich off of this, <laughs> not true. Um, and they sold it to Merck. 
and uh, Merck uh, showed that it would work for influenza vaccination in mice, big science paper, and the people that were given head of the project became very important people, Jeffrey Ulmer and Margaret Liu. Uh, and um, I got nasty grams from Merck, I mean from Vicel, saying uh, once I finished med school and started doing research as an academic, I will not do any research in the areas that I had worked on when I was there or they will sue me. Okay. What is this, uh, a contract, like a, like a yeah, pro-contractor yeah, with because I had, rice? <laughs> because I had signed this agreement. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and Merck made a corporate decision. I think what may have happened is that when I left, nobody could really make the RNA in quantity. Um, and Merck made a decision. The RNA was never going to work. It was too hard to make it. And uh, so they were going to just focus on the DNA. And they spent literally a couple billion dollars trying to get it to work in humans. Never did. Then they gave it back to Vicel, and Vicel spent about a billion dollars of investor money. And for instance, there's a, a Wired article, if you know the magazine Wired. Yeah, I know that, yeah. So Wired put out a, a cover spread. Um, Vicel was the next Microsoft. It's going to revolutionize the world. Um, nothing ever came of it. The company basically went bankrupt. Um, never produced a product. But what Vicel and Merck did was that any other companies that tried to develop the RNA, which would compete with the DNA, um, they would sue. So when CureVac started to work on the RNA, they got nasty grams uh, and got attacked legally. And that went on until the patents expired 20 years later. At what point, suddenly the field kicks off again. Mm -hmm. uh, DARPA the, the kind of operational arm of the CIA, the developmental arm, throws money into the pot, creates Moderna, among others. And um, there's this whole push uh, by the kind of uh, national security state um, to advance the tech. And that's kind of what brings us to the present. And so the DNA vaccine tech absolutely works in mice uh, and um, uh, has, you know, many, many, many publications. Uh, and you don't even need the positively charged fats necessarily to slip it in. So all that toxicity goes away. Wow. Um, but uh, it just doesn't seem to work very well in humans, uh, except the advance we made uh, back when I was at Maryland, Baltimore, was um, if you inject the DNA into your skin and then you hit it with a pulsed electrical field with electrodes, and the problem is it makes you get muscle contraction, so your arm's going like this <laughs> while, you, <laughs> while you do it. But um, uh, it works really good. Uh, so there's a there. this is still kind of, you know, what is it? 89, 99, 2019, 20. So 30, you know, moving on 35 years since the discovery. There's still a lot of stuff that could be done. And um, so what you're seeing with those papers is that um, because of this kind of intellectual property space and the difficulty of making the RNA, um, the DNA had, and Merck's sitting on things, the DNA had moved a lot further. And there's no question that making, cooking this RNA 
is technically challenging in this kind of the batches that uh, I mean this is billions <clears throat> billions of doses that have been administered worldwide it's as I as I say in I think in the book or certainly in one of our substacks I think in the book um, as as a logistical achievement this is amazing um, I'm I'm blown away by what's been possible unfortunately in order to get there They've had to cut all kind of corners, rush things, and I fear they probably have destroyed the value of the technology by doing it because, for instance, we had this recent Ebola outbreak. Um, I think it was in Uganda. And they wanted to roll out a new Ebola vaccine based on the RNA. And what I heard was the locals were like, hell no. You're crazy. <laughs> right? No, we're not doing all this. We've seen that stuff. No, no, no. <laughs> and... and um, you know, uh, could this have had potential? Um, I think so. It's a, it's a just a, a shame that you know twenty of the best doctors, including you, or vaccinologists, couldn't have came together and all worked on it together, or just follow the, the rules, or follow the rules and get the right data. Maybe, yeah. I mean, that's really all you needed. <laughs> just follow the rules, you know, <laughs> and and be fuck. honest about it and say, hey, you know, guys, this isn't working out so good because there's a bunch of other vaccines out there. The WHO has licensed over 10 different vaccines. There are traditional vaccines out there. And now we know that it was kind of a tempest in a teapot anyhow, because number one, it's wicked hard to make a vaccine against a, a respiratory RNA virus um, that is worth a tinker's dam <laughs> because they evolve like crazy. Um, and probably what we have done, I've said it from the outset, Gert von Bosch has been a leader in raising this alarm, with this global vaccination policy, we're probably driven the development of these escape mutants. And what I hear is the latest escape mutant is completely resistant to the vaccine effects. I don't believe it. Um, it's the, the only ones that are going to be protected are the ones with I, natural immunity. I, I have a question totally related to vaccines in general. <clears throat> so... We understand your work. People who know you understand it. You always have people now that use, okay, we have the, the COVID vaccine, and we have all these other vaccines that be cre created in you know years, years past for other different things. And I always hear the term, you know, home, you know, don't do any vaccines. Don't get your kids vaccinated for whatever it is when they're, when they're little kids because it causes autism. It does this, it does that. Yeah, measles, mozzarella. Is there truth to any of that? Is that just a... a, a people going off the deep end is that or is there so, some truth to that um so i'm already labeled as the uh, uh vaccine developing anti-vaxxer <laughs> um so i'm, I'm just going to go all in um as i already did with candace owens uh i believed in vaccines i really did put my career on it um uh and I and I believed a lot of of um, what we've all been told about childhood vaccination programs. Right, you need to get the measles. You need to get the chickenpox. Yeah. MMR, polio, not chickenpox. I, I had chickenpox. I still got the scars. I do too. I have um, one right here. <laughs> uh, um, but I've also had shingles. I can tell you, shingles oh, hurts. My mom had that right before she passed. Shingles hurts. Yeah. Um. And by the way, the jabs uh, trigger shingles in a lot of people. 
Um, Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Do we have boost number seven yet? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that will give you shingles and uh, make you bald. <laughs> Maybe that will stop you. Epstein Barbers. <laughs> um, so uh, the Bobby Kennedy's beef has been all the way through. You know, he's another one that the press has grossly misrepresented. Grossly. Um, uh, Del Bigtree. Um, uh, their point is, has been that the data, you know, modern quality data, data meeting modern standards, because a lot of these were licensed in mid-century. And frankly, if you go back and look at the data on which they were licensed, it is nowhere close to anything that anybody would accept now. Well, except during COVID. Um, uh, um, so their their request, I won't even say beef, their, their reasonable request is show me the data. Show me the data that these are truly safe and effective. Um, and uh, in particular also, show me the data that these uh, pediatric schedules in which you're combining so many different vaccines now, it's 30 plus jabs that the little kids are taking, um, uh, are, are not interacting and that they're safe and effective. And the data aren't there. And um, for me, the big, to just give a shout out, the big eye opener, I did this three hour hit with Candace um, in the studio at Daily Wire and uh, in Nashville, um, great studio, fascinating woman. Oh man, is she smart mm. and street smart too. Um, uh, and um, I w- confronted is too strong as a word, but she presented me with information that her and her her producer had developed because this is a hot topic for her as a young mother and as an advocate. Uh, about uh, the incidence of a lot of these ca- classic pediatric diseases over time and uh, the deployment of the vaccine products. And in, in almost all of these cases, the incidence of the disease is negligible um, in many of them. And for those that were more prevalent, uh, the incidence of the disease declined precipitously in the years before the deployment of the jab. Polio is a great example of that. And it's hard to square the circle that uh, as is the case with many public health interventions that it's really kind of classic public health uh, like remember the story of typhoid Mary, Mm -hmm. the contaminated wells in London. Yeah. What did you do? You sealed up the wells. Okay. Um, the other day, I, you know, last summer I was in Venice. Venice has got wells everywhere. Every single one of them is capped. Um, uh, um, it, it, the data suggest that I've seen that um, the uh, collapse in incidence of, for instance, polio is more accurately attributed to improved uh, 
water sanitation quality and reducing um, fecal waste in water systems, human fecal waste, which, by the way, is an ongoing problem. Um, uh, one farm away from our farm is the Robinson River, uh, which is the great trout, far- trout river in Virginia. It goes up into the Shenandoah. And um, when you get back in the hills, uh, there's still, uh, gently put, open latrines, which is to say um, somebody's got a um, outhouse. Again, I'm being gentle with my language. And an open trench that leads straight to the Robinson. And apparently, so the story goes, the trout fishermen used to complain about seeing human Species floating down as they're <laughs> as they're trying to catch their trout. Okay, um, and probably the trout thought that was another opportunity for dinner. I don't know, but yeah, they were probably but, happy. About yeah, but but that's like, hey, come on, guys. But the point buffet. is, the, and so the state of Virginia has had a big program uh, to capitalize the building of septic systems. You know, um, in for those the the hill folk that live way back there. Uh, because the trout fishermen are are not liking having this, and they're basically using uh, fishing uh, license money to capitalize putting in septic systems. Point being that it's still a problem in the West, uh, in some regions, and it was very much more so before World War II, and then through World War II, and then then we got on top of it. You know, after World War II, you know. Pax Americana, and and uh, and we became incredibly wealthy because of our success, and and kind of dominance in so many ways, and we were able to capitalize upgrading our a lot of our water systems, and that probably had more to do. To to kind of finish the anecdote, a lot of people think that the Ebola vaccine in the first West Af- uh, African outbreak was what kind of closed the deal on that Ebola outbreak. Not true. Um, uh, it was it was tested, but the incidence of Ebola was crashing as the ring vaccination trials, very innovative structure, ring vaccination trials are being deployed. Now, I know this because it's another one of the things that I was at the tip of the spear on, which is bringing forward the Canadian vaccine, and I actually got it licensed to Merck, and I was right in the middle of that mix. Okay, But um, the truth is that what caused the West African Ebola outbreak to finally collapse was teaching the locals that the practice of uh, grieving the dead by having them lie in state and having the you know the traditional practice of the relatives coming around and uh, grieving and touching the dead and kissing the dead and um, you know being there with the recently deceased, Ebola sticks around a long time on the skin. Mm. And once they finally kind of figured out that that's really what's going on, and they started educating people saying, no, I'm sorry, when they die from this, they got to go in the ground, they got to be burned, and you don't hang around and mourn uh, granddad, even though you'd like to. And that's been the tradition in the past. You can't do it or you're all going to die. And they stopped doing it, and the incidence of Ebola crashed. Just like the with, so we just touched on monkeypox, okay? And there was this whole hubbubaloo, and I call it fear porn, you know, built around. And there was absolutely a war game almost precisely one year before. It was held in Germany. 
almost predicted for somehow to the day this Canary Islands uh, massive gay rave festival that seemed to have been the spark that lit that somehow. Right. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, precisely. Well, uh, genie gently, in a box, right? gently put, genie in a box. Yeah, somehow it <laughs> happened. Uh, precisely the appointed date, um, uh, and uh, and then Tedros and the WHO and they did all their things and they they decided that uh, six to nine vote was a tie and he had to break the tie. <laughs> Right, I mean, this, this, you can't make this stuff up. It's it's, it's there, um, and it has all kinds of implications because they want to be in charge of world health, and you know be able to do whatever. So six to nine is a tie. Yeah, yeah. Just um, and and so the United States went crazy. Uh, we appointed an AIDS. I mean, a, I'm sorry, that was a, a faux pas, a, a monkeypox czar, uh, and and we started deploying this smallpox vaccine that we had. Uh, stockpiled, which nobody ever showed that was actually going to be good for um, uh, monkeypox, and it looks in retrospect like it really wasn't. Um, and all this, you know, on CNN and all that, and uh, if you look at the curves for monkeypox incidents over time, uh, it goes in striking parallel. World incidents and United States incidents, it goes up and then it goes down, Okay. Which means, because they didn't deploy that vaccine all over the world, they only deployed it in the United States, that you can't tell any difference in the response curves between the worldwide incidents and the United States incidents. Okay, so it probably wasn't the vaccine that did anything. What was it? It was telling gay men to not do that for two months after they get infected because that's the time that's necessary to clear the virus and that you're infectious. And once people had reasonable behavior practices for a public health outbreak, gone, oh. right? That's the way, you know, the, this, yeah, so if I, I'm getting on my soapbox here, uh, forgive me, yeah. but um, the hubris um, of, of the global public health community, and particularly the MPHs, which are not physicians, they're, they're not trained in medicine, they're trained in biostatistics and and many things, but medicine they're not trained in generally unless they're an MD, PhD, MD, MPH. But the people making these decisions, like Tedros is not a medical, he's a veterinarian. Um, uh, but he's not a journalist. <laughs> look on the, <laughs> could bright, be worse. Look on the bright side. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we go on about Tedros. But um, traditionally... Uh, um, biology and the immune system are amazing. And uh, the ability of human beings when left to alone a little bit, left to their own devices, together with well-informed information about mechanisms of transmission and ways to uh, mitigate your own risk um, are are really effective, and the idea that somehow we we have so much knowledge that we can come up with something better than what has been developed over millennia of evolution in this constant battleground between infectious disease and and mammals is just uh, beyond naive. Uh, and we've seen three years now 
of examples of hubris and um, uh, exploitation and um, uh, exploit and self-interest uh, in um, financial gain at, at the expense of all of us, of our children. Wives. Yeah. If you had a kid right now, let's just say you popped out a kid. Kid's born tomorrow. My wife. Was wife. <clears throat> My wife. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I'm originally from California. Nowadays, fucking never know. Nowadays, you and your wife, your wife has a kid tomorrow. Do you have that girl or boy get any of the vaccines? So um, that is a key question. And, and I'm hoping, Candace said yes in theory, that the two of us would work through the vaccine schedule together in a series of interviews. Because um, a lot of people that want to hear the answer from you, buddy. Yeah, and, and at this point, um, I'm uh, very skeptical. Of any of them. Yeah, um, that's the honest truth. And I don't want to give medical advice in any way. I had, as an anecdote, um, you know, people call us all the time. We It's increasingly hard to get through to me because I'm just so blasted. Um, uh, I can't even keep up with my text messages anymore. Good thing. They're popular. They always say. But then... No news is bad news. Yeah, you feel like you're not um, helping people in the way that you should. Um, At least I do. So... Um, I had these two guys, high net worth um, investor types, both young, both with uh, pregnant wives, asked me this question. And I said, okay, guys, um, let's do it. They, they were like, hell, we'll pay, we'll pay you, you know. Um, give us some of your time. And I'm like, okay, um, we'll work through the schedule. Uh, and we did. Uh, and there was a couple of them that um, they felt like uh, they should go forward with. Most of them not. Here's the thing for your listeners. And I'll start with this uh, fun fact that I learned from Matthias Desmet, uh, this uh, brilliant um, psychiatrist from Belgium, uh, author of... um, Psychological Basis of Totalitarianism, uh, the Mass Formation Psychosis Guy. And he says that that the literature teaches that only about 10% of people really want to be free. Most people want to be told what to do. And under an authoritarian regime, if you're going to be the authoritarian leader, if that's your leadership style, like for instance, for me, I'm a servant leader. I could never be an authoritarian leader. That's just not in my DNA. It's not how I'm wired. But for those people that are, you want to be the harshest totalitarian you can. That's what's most effective. Okay? So Joe Biden with the famous speech and MAGA and all that. Okay? If you want to go there, you got to go all in. And for 10% of the people, they do not want that. Right? They want to be free. They want to live free. Most people want to be told what to do. 90% is a big number. That's the way it is. It's not good. Yeah, that's the way it is. So less than 10% of people were responsible for the American Revolution. Just kind of... Let that sink in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the way it is. Just live with it. Um, uh, 
So um, for if you are one of those people who, who wants to take ownership for your life and your children and your, your spouse, um, uh, what you're saying is that um, I am going to own responsibility for making these key decisions. Because the option is for the other 90%, 80-90%, just go along to get along. You know, do what the CDC tells you to do. Do what the American Academy of Pediatric Medicine tells you what to do. And you don't have to worry about it. And if the bad thing happens, it's their fault. Okay? If your child gets whatever the damage is, um, it's not your fault. You're just following directions. Okay? It's like a lot of these things. But what about the kid? Well, there's that. Okay, but but that's that's one way uh, to see the world is um, uh, I don't want to have to make those. This is one of the hardest lessons for me in medical school. I'm still kind of don't get it. Um, I was always of the camp that when I approached a patient, it was a dialogue and I was giving information to the patient and helping them make their decisions. Most patients don't want that. Most patients want to be told what to do. Doc, just tell me what drug to take. Okay, I don't want to have spent half an hour talking yeah. about this. Yeah, I got just five tell minutes. Me. Just tell me what to yeah. take, yeah. what to shoot, where to go, how yeah. much is it? See yeah. yeah, yeah, bang. Okay, um, and and if if you want to live that life, that life of of accepting authority and not questioning it, um, that you can kind of internally absolve yourself of responsibility for the consequences. Um, you know, and, and uh, there's these words like sheeple, you know, people just kind of go along. They live in a fog. They're on their, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's how they live. If you want to be one of those people who wants to take ownership and make your own decisions about which vaccination you should give your child. The consequence is that at some frequency, you know, could be tiny, your child could have a infectious disease event that could cause them to have meningitis and die, for example, okay? Or get cervical cancer. Um, I, my wife's closest friend as a child developed cervical cancer in her 20s and she was dead within three years. Sorry to hear that. Okay. Um, it happens. Uh, um, so if you if you say, no, I'm going to make my own decision, I'm going to evaluate the data, um, it could very well be that that vaccine would not have stopped that event anyhow. Um, but you are going to have to live with it. You're going to have to live with that fact that your child had that infectious disease and had the repercussions from that infectious disease. And and you made a conscious decision to not do something which might have prevented that. We could argue that. Okay? Right. Okay. Maybe so, maybe um, no, but you still and, subconsciously. Or, or if you say on the flip side, mm-hmm. I'm going to give this product... I'm, I'm going to own the responsibility to give this product to my child. 
and your child develops uh, some adverse event, Guillain-Barre syndrome, you know, whether whether it is autism or not, or whatever the thing is, you know, the data show um, there's some big studies that children that receive these vaccination protocols have lower IQ, lower IQ. And isn't the risk of autoimmune disease skyrocket? Can't, there's a whole bunch of things that have gone off the charts. Okay. So if you accept the responsibility, the personal responsibility, because you're one of those 10%, okay, you're not, you don't trust or whatever. Okay. You're going to own it yourself. What that means is you have to own it either way. Okay. If the, if, if you decide to, to jab your kid and something bad happens, you've got to own that. You've got to live with it. Um, if you decide not to jab your kid and something happens because they get infected, you've got to own that. Okay. So living free is wicked hard in so many ways. We make decisions. We can't always get it right, um, you know, on a daily basis. I bought a farm on loans when we moved down to North Georgia, and within a year, the economy collapsed, and I lost a huge amount of money. Um, and I'm never going to get it, you know, it yeah. does, it's gone, yeah. right? Um, was that a good decision? Should I have sold my farm in uh, Frederick uh, with the 52 acres and moved down to North Georgia um, to take that job? Uh, I don't know. In retrospect, it looked like a bad decision, but I got to live with it. That's that's the problem, uh, and also the joy. But but if if so, that's that's my comment about, um, you know, do you do you uh, accept the CDC guidance, or like uh, Candace, do your do your own diligence, uh, and either way. There is no right answer. Things can go wrong. Either and, way, you just have to be willing to live with it, right, and accept it. Which is the nature of being free. It is the the wicked hard part about um, being a free living person uh, that does not um, just roll over and do whatever authority tells you to do. Um, is is you got to own when bad stuff happens, just like you get to celebrate when good stuff happens. And, you know, and I think there's no other way to live. Yeah, it goes both ways. Yeah, I, I think I wouldn't, you know, but I live on a, I live on a farm in, in rural Virginia up against the Shenandoah Mountains. So that's not for everybody. You know, I could, I once cut my leg open with a chainsaw. Oh, um, no, thank you. You know, it's, it's. I'm glad you're a doctor. Stuff happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, I could, I could, uh. I could easily get knocked out. I, I, you know, I don't know how many times I've come off a horse. Um, you know, my wife uh, had a trimolar fracture coming off. I mean, her ankle was just floppy like your wrist. Mm. Things happen mm -hmm. um, if you live that life. Uh, but I wouldn't live any other way. What has, you know, speaking of kids, to date now, what what has some data shown that you know with the jab that, you know, the COVID jab? Yeah, the COVID jab. That they're giving it to these 13-year-olds. absolutely no logic. No logic at all. No. That we So people, this is another thing I get. 
aspect some, out, and I don't mean, I mean to ask you've the same you've thing. done your yeah. you've done your research about me, and I thank you for that. A lot of people will shoot off their mouth on social media about you know this, that, or the other thing. They, oh, I heard about you, Doctor Malone, that you're controlled opposition. You work for the CIA, whatever they say. Okay, um, and uh, um, one of those things that has popped up in the past, I pretty much hammered that down was, well, why don't you come out and say that no one should get the jab? Um, well, in fact, I think it was May 11th, Global COVID Summit, Declaration 4, um, we came out on Del Big Tree's studio, um, a whole bunch of us uh, with the Global COVID Summit Group, and made a clear, unequivocal statement. We were filming it until 2 in the morning um, uh, about... Um, that there, it's our professional opinion, representing over 17,000 physicians and medical scientists from all over the world, that there is uh, no justification for deploying these genetic vaccine products at all, and they should be withdrawn from the market, period, full stop. And then we went through a bunch of other key points that basically are that people should be held accountable. There should be judicial proceedings um, uh, you know, sh people should be taken to court, including the major manufacturers, uh, for the fraud and, and uh, misconduct that's gone on. It is very hard-hitting, and it was quite early. Uh, and, you know, of course it was suppressed, and people aren't aware of it, but uh, that's been my position now for a long time, and I didn't come there easily. Uh, at first it was, well, it, the data looked like um, there's still a benefit in the elderly. Never was any logic for the pediatric cohort. Not never. But now, uh, it's become abundantly clear that the risk benefit for the elderly is not there. And now, what's about to break? I'm pretty sure, um, with Ed Dowd and his team, is data that anyone can go into from all over the world that show that um, the jabs are causing uh, more deaths by far than they're saving. Um, and there's data from all over the world that's suppressed in the United States, but that uh, the vast majority of people that are hospitalized or dying are um, fully vaccinated and that there seems to be a dose-dependent function there. So the more jabs you get, the more likely you get hospitalized or die. And there's now good science in multiple peer-reviewed papers from major groups from all over the world that provide a quite plausible scientific explanation for why that might be. So at this point, because remember before, we knew the kids, It was there was no logical reason six months ago. I remember you saying that. But the elderly, <clears throat> it was still on the cuff. Right now, you think no good. Is it good for anyone, no. even with a pre-existing no. condition no. or no. nothing? No, 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 no. N-O, no. no. That's amazing. Early treatment. Um, as we're heading into this uh, fall winter, you know, we had more dark winter kind of mutterings from Mr. Biden. Um, you know, you're all going to die. You know, they're yeah. kind of. He's still pushing the booster. He is. I heard him last week totally. pushing it. Totally. <laughs> um, this guy's not, yeah. I, don't, 
I, I, you know, I guess ten million people or however many gazillion people. It wasn't how much enough. money did Pfizer pump Jeez, in this pocket? <laughs> um, and there's stuff coming out about that, about links with Hunter and Pfizer and China, and just goes on and on. But does it just disappear and go away like everything else? Memory hole. You know, um, but, uh, but, um, the, the data, particularly on children is really clear and compelling. And um, the decision by the CDC, I think, is seen all over the world as evidence of, of how corrupted the system is in the United States. For me, um, remember I said that I, we did this uh, first international COVID summit in Rome. Yes. Um, the intention had been that I would spending a vacation time in Portugal at that time uh, but I got, you know, if somebody says, you want to speak in the Roman Senate, what do you say? You know. Um, yeah. uh, so we did that, and then we still had some days left, and we traveled down to Portugal for a horse show, of course. And, um, and I got sucked into the world of the Lisbon intelligentsia kind of alt community. Um, and Portugal is one of the highly, most highly, perhaps maybe the most highly vaccinated country in the world. Exceeding Israel, really. Um, and uh, so I did two extended um, interview roundtable things. All they could allow was fifty people in a room. That was the guidance from the government. In Portugal, you don't go against the government. Um, history, of, history of fascism, and you know things like you might get hung. <laughs> um, yeah. So <laughs> either uh, way, yeah. So. Um, People tend to be very compliant in Portugal, plus centuries of Catholic church rule. Um, uh, so uh, even more so than Italy. Fun fact, uh, Portugal is considered even more corrupt in the government <laughs> than Italy is. Wow. Good to know. Wow. Um, yeah. So so <laughs> any case, I get brought in, in two nights in a row for hours, 50 people. And I'm sitting there doing a Q&A roundtable. Got a translator, um, journalist there, and a couple other scientists, and um, people in the audience. And there's this older woman, and she she uh, tells her story, and she's lost a loved one. Um, and she says to me, "We used to believe that the FDA was the gold standard for the world for uh, ensuring safety and." Um, uh, regulating drug development and vaccine development. And what we have come to see is that it is corrupt. And it, I had never thought of it that way. At that point in time, I was still enough in the narrative, in enough of the belief system, that, um, that realizing that we had just compromised an entire industry. We had compromised a reputation that was built up over decades in order to push these jabs. And that the legitimacy of the United States pharmaceutical industrial complex had been destroyed worldwide. Um, when little old ladies in Portugal are telling you that they've come to realize that the FDA is corrupt, um, 
That's that's yeah, when, as a vaccinologist and everything you've done and accomplished, that has to be the one because you're not not a kid, not a middle aged, an elderly lady, and you know that they're, they're stuck on their beliefs. So when they change their beliefs, <laughs> yeah, that's like trying to get a you know an Italian woman to get over a grudge in a day. Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was it was a, a transcendent moment where where I realized. The things that I had been predicting on social media, that if they kept doing this, they were going to destroy public health and the vaccine enterprise, it, they'd accomplished it. And I don't know where things go from here. Even now. You don't know where they go from here now. Yeah. It's just, it's too, it could go too many different ways, right? Yeah. And a lot of them are kind of dark. Um, and uh, that's, that's, that's what the book you know that's that's the reveal and and like you said i think that our best weapon is getting informed and um unless you know if you're somebody who wants to um live as a free person uh you have to take ownership um and figure a way out of this and i'm not sure what it is what do we use for currency in a world dominated by, by the international bank of settlements controlling central bank digital currency, uh, you know what? How to how? The only thing, and this is why this election tomorrow is so important. Whatever the outcome is going to be, is um, do we still believe in the constitution? Do we still believe in the nation state? Do we still believe in the American experience? In the American experiment? Do we still believe? in the American Renaissance um, because the, there's a lot of forces that don't believe in that anymore that want to take it away. I mean, the, the latest thing, when George Bush, number one, uh, first encountered discussions uh, in, the, in the press, in the lay media, about um, dropping the, the barriers between Mexico, United States, and Canada, and making this basically one nation state, not just an economic free trade zone, but one nation state. He said, ah, oh, that's just a crazy rumor, conspiracy theorist. And you can look it up. He used the same terms that we're now familiar with. Hmm. It's just a bunch of conspiracy theorists. And lately, the administration has started talking about exactly that. And what happens if they do that? It is the best way to get rid of the Constitution. Um, I don't know, you know, folks have, as for me, uh, you know, I got my little Galt's Gulch, um, and if, if things happen and suddenly I had a million bucks drop into me, you know what I'd do? I'd build a great big damn fence, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'd buy some weapons, uh, um, and hopefully a little bit more, uh, acreage so I could plant more, uh. Um, but for for most people, like um, you said, they want to be told what to do. Yeah, or if not, uh, they better they better wake up uh, and and get with the program because uh, uh, the future for them and their children is not looking um, like anything like what we live right now. I, I I never thought about it until I talked to you like this. Like, because the the question is always why, 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 
Why, why, why? And then there's so many moving parts. It's so big and it's just insanity. Why, why does anybody want more power and money? What makes Bill Gates tick? I, I mean, can't you would think he has enough by now. Yeah. I, I don't I don't get it. <laughs> right? I, I mean, do not get geez. it. I don't know. It's not how I'm wired. But, you know, I guess some people can never have enough. I don't know. Or maybe it's just the adrenaline rush. You know, can I do this? Can I pull this off? Can I or do... Or maybe he really thinks yeah. that the world requires genius Bill Gates to solve all their problems and the and that includes depopulation and and uh, all these other things and you know you will eat crickets i don't know what goes on in his head and in all honesty it very could that could be possible you know? uh, he could be completely convinced that he is doing the right thing for all of us and we're just stupid that we don't get it <laughs> you know he doesn't talk to me um i don't know but uh i do know that if your listeners um, uh, value their ability uh, and that of their children to live in a free world, uh, if they're not already with the program, they better get. Quick. Last thing I'll, I'll ask you. When you were, I saw you on Fox on Ingram and you tore Alex to shreds, you know, <laughs> And uh, he's, that's a story. He, yeah, he's been ignoring me, but uh, but you you ripped them, and I was just thinking in my head to, to myself, like Alex, do you realize who you're talking to? Do you realize who this guy is that you're going to try? He's a cool I, guy. I, he, okay, I don't know him, but I wanted to know why you were in Japan. I wasn't in Japan. I was in Spain. Oh, Spain! I thought you, I thought you were yeah. in Japan. For no, summer. no, I was in Spain in Andalusia. Uh, so it was two in the morning. I hadn't had a coffee. I'd woken up to take the hit. I'm broadcasting from the bottom level of a three-level house in a little tiny Spanish town um, in you know poor section of Andalusia. Uh, and we were there for the film shoot for Headwind. So this is the uh, series with me and Matthias and Gert von der Basha that's very cinematic. It's got Jill and I riding horses and all oh, that good cool. stuff. Congratulations. It was, it was distributed by uh, Epoch Times. Uh, and and maybe the headwind team from Belgium will uh, do the uh, um, film associated with the book. We're, we're currently having this discussion. Um, great film crew, um, you know, 8K cameras. Or any of the wonks out there, you know, Soundman. 8K. You want to deal with that file, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> uh, these are these are big rigs. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the drone and all that kind of stuff. And. Take two is my first real movie making experience. Let's do it, Doctor um, Malone. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So I'm there, and and uh, and and we do the hit. I wake up. I'm sitting there, and this guy comes on, and he just unloads on me. Pull up that tab real quick. Yep. And, then, <laughs> and I'm uh, like, and we'll, we'll get about report. <laughs> I, I see. I see you sitting there, and, and you're sitting there, and he's, and I'm just. Play this, Rob. I'm just, I had to, I had to put this up. Here is Eric Topol. What's important, I'm amazed that the press has picked this up. This is only 270 people and they're medical writers, nurses, yeah, all yeah. kinds of people. In contrast, the declaration in the Physicians, International Alliance of Physicians and Medical Scientists, which is signed only by physicians and medical scientists, I'm the president of that organization, has over 16,000 signatories. 
This is a huge kerfuffle over 270 malcontents of mixed origin led by Eric Topol, who is uh, a shill for the administration at this point. This is this is a non-story that's been blown up by the press. I don't think Dr. Malone does it himself or those of us who uh, you know, are trying to raise questions about the vaccines. Any, any favors? Is this guy crazy? Does he know who he's talking to? So I'm still not sure what what he's about, where he's coming from. Um, now, Rob, watch watch Dr. Malone's face here in a minute. Hit play because they do double. He favors when he refers to himself as the inventor of mRNA technology. That's clearly a large just, exaggeration. And we are allowed to disagree. I can disagree with Dr. Malone. He can disagree with me. The solution is not to ban us. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Malone, would you like to respond? I've got to give you a few oh, yeah, seconds. Smirk. Look at that smirk. Yeah, nine issued patents all filed oh. in 1989. Uh, all covering this technology, including the initial reduction to practice, all with my name on them. I would call that the original inventor, and I wrote Ooh. the initial disclosures, Alex. That was a low blow. Good night. Good night. Throw, throw the mic, Dr. Malone. Throw the mic. Throw it off. Throw it to the DJ. I was I was just sitting there going, where is this guy coming from? You know, what? what I, I, so it was clearly planned. It was clearly a planned attack. Um what the motive was, uh, what caused him to conceive that he had to do that attack is still a mystery to me. Um, well, you, you ate him for lunch. <laughs> oh, thanks. I'm sorry, I was, I, I was, I, it just, I had, it just, uh, some, a lot of this stuff just comes from my subconscious. I wasn't like consciously processing how I'm going to get this guy. It was just like, okay, what are you going to say to this? No, you know? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> he, said you're wrong and, and you go Alex look, look buddy l listen I've done boom 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 go to bed it's <laughs> pretty much what I did afterwards you're gonna yeah. laugh when I ask you this one who's the greatest quarterback of all time all time I don't know the answer I don't know who's your, just give who do you think the guy from the Patriots. Yeah. Ah, finally. Yeah, we we always do this at, at the end. To see. Joe, Mon Joe Montana is mine. He, he likes Montana. I think Brady's the best ever. Yeah. After coming back, you know, yeah. going to a new exactly. team and winning. Come back. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Malone. I hope you come back sometime. I really appreciate it. And thank you for coming back even after that hurricane. You didn't have to do that, and you did that for me. And I appreciate it, and we'll remember that forever, sir. It's my pleasure. Really, I will. I will. Yeah. Really appreciate it, it's man. It's been fun having a chat. It's an honor to be across from a man like you. Anything, Rob? That's it, man. Thank you so much Amazing. for your time. Amazing yeah. stuff. Okay. Honor. Cool.